Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio, 12th of January, 2014. Uh, a wee note. Uh, I am looking forward to the cavalcade of articles from people who've claimed that because Bit- Bitcoin generally gains in value, people won't spend it. Uh, the very first day, the very first day that Overstock.com started taking Bitcoins, they did $130,000 worth of Bitcoin sales. Ha! Huh. But wait, don't these people know that Bitcoins gain in value? Therefore, they will never spend it? Anyway, it's the same reason why we know that there's no such thing as computers, because computers constantly gain in value, in that you can get far better computers six months down the road from what you can get now. But uh, given that we're not immortal, we do like things now. So uh, they did, uh, I think, 600-plus transactions, uh, average uh, price 150 bucks a piece. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, because when you have a theory and then the empirical evidence comes in, it's time to revise your theory. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let me just Google that. No, nope, nothing yet. But I'm sure that people will be uh, <laughs> will be checking it out uh, and and hoisting themselves on their own petard because they got Bitcoined, baby. Uh, theory versus practice. Let's see where the thinkers land. All right. I know we've got a lot of callers today. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, but yeah, go to Overstock.com. I don't have any affiliation. I make no money from them. But uh, go to Overstock.com and... If you have uh, understocks in your home, you can balance them with overstock. I don't know much about the website, but apparently it evens out. And uh, so do that, overstock.com. Check out. They take bitcoins, and uh, I believe they're quite large. So, uh, all right, Misty Mike, let's go with the callers. All right. Up first is Haplo. Go ahead, Haplo. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. How you doing? I'm all right. Uh, I've... Your, name, your name seems eerily familiar to me. Uh, Either I dreamt about you. Do you often wear boas and just a rain hat? No. No. Why, why do I know your name so well? <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, go ahead. What can I do for you? Oh, well, I've uh, recently, within the past couple of months, found uh, I'm a YouTube person. And I, I found you on YouTube and pretty much pawed through everything you've put out on YouTube. And I have not found one thing that I can't disagree with so or can disagree with, however you want to put it. Well, I think that you, you might want to find the right way to put it because those are completely opposite positions. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, it's first I thing think in you're beautiful. I hate you. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, uh, my my dilemma is that I, I've always been a type of person to see things for as they are. Maybe it's, I was raised by uh, German parents uh, that uh, migrated to America when I was eight. And I've seen things in a slightly different light than most of my uh, American friends here. And I'm, I'm, I'm appalled and shocked at uh, everything I see that goes on in this country, in America, and their imperialism and everything else that goes along with it. And I see the decline and everything just falling to pieces. It's like the Titanic sinking slowly because it just keep patching it. And hoping for the best and expecting the worst, but knowing in the in the end it's going to fall apart. And seemingly now that uh, the U.S. government has got most of American minds uh, completely, you know, they're, everybody's hypnotized through their media and all of the propaganda they put out. Keep people stupid so they can pull the strings behind the scenes and get away with what they get away with. 
those that wake up and stop buying into the things that uh, the U.S. government pushes on them through the news media agencies and all of that, and this uh, fake two-party system that they like to push on people, because I think the smart people really know that uh, the two-party system is a farce, and that it's just, uh, I think both both of them are in uh, cahoots with each other. They high-five each other afterwards. You know, an election, they all know each other. They go, you know, snorting coke off of a whore's ass together uh, after the election and they're partying and uh, knowing that they got us all duped. Um, I just, I'm not really sure uh, if I want to be here any longer. I've been making moves to get, get out of America. Um, I have been tied here for several different reasons because I did grow up here. I've been here most of my life, been back and forth from Germany and uh, in America, but uh, most of uh, my family now, which is uh, cousins and an aunt and an uncle now in Germany, um, then my father in Australia. So I'm literally all by myself here, but uh, I've got a few kids here that I stay for. But um, I'm worried for my children and what uh, the future that they have here in this country and if this country is actually going to exist any longer. If it's going to be something, well, it certainly uh, it, it certainly won't exist in its current form. No, I mean that's that's not on, uh, in a long enough time frame. The survival rate of all statist economies goes to zero. Right, and so I mean, I used to think so. Ayn Rand sort of had this theory that basically people just wanted to die, but they were too cowardly to do it. So what they did was they kind of piled on a truck that was heading off a cliff. <laughs> and cheered the whole yes. way down Thank and you. pretended it was a you know compassion and all this. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think that's um, you know a fairly damning indictment. I think the basic reality, you know, one of the basic reasons why. Let me just use the word basic again, basically. Uh, but one of the reasons why statism is so destructive is because people choose conformity over life itself. Mm-hmm. And that's not some fundamental weakness in the human character or anything like that. It's just a basic reality that we ne- we needed the tribe to survive. Right. I mean, that's that you know that evolutionary psychology is is important. We needed the tribe to, to survive. Women needed the tribe to bring her food and and keep her warm and and sh- sheltered and all that when she was you know late and big with child and then young and new with child and all that. And in order to, to survive, we needed cooperation of our fellow people. So we are uh, fundamentally a conformist species. And this is not, you know, conformist is considered a bad thing. You've got to be an iconoclast and an eccentric and all that. But it's just a basic biological reality. And, and in that, it's the greatest strength of voluntarism and the greatest weakness of statism. So... The fact that we evolved to be a species r- which requires social approval in order to survive. I mean, we don't need it so much now. You can make money playing poker off the internet and you know, never deal with anyone face-to-face if you don't want to. But it doesn't matter. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> you know, we evolved to like sugar because uh, fruit fixed certain medical issues that we might have, right? Like... Um, or, yeah, someone corrected me. I said rickets, uh, it's vitamin D for rickets and scurvy for vitamin C. And so, but now the sugar addictions are killing us, right? Uh, and so this is just the reality. If you chose the tribe, you had a chance of survival. If you rejected the tribe, 
you may have a chance for personal survival, but you had almost no chance for biological, for genetic survival. Your genes just weren't going to be passed on. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is the most famous love story in history. It's basically the story of this. Uh, two lovers go against the social conventions. We've got the Romulans versus the Capulets. <laughs> I don't think it's the Romulans. <laughs> Who is it? I can't remember. But yeah, these two warring families in Verona, and their kids fall in love with each other, and they die because they're breaking the tribe. You break the tribe, you die. And this is something that's consistently reinforced. But what that means, of course, is we're incredibly dependent upon social approval. And, you know, studies have shown that if you go against social approval, if you are uh, ostracized, it actually is, is biologically the same as physical torture. So what this means is we don't need a state, right? We, all we need is because we already are a socially conformist uh, society. And, I mean, I get a unique view of this because I get all of the uh, emails from people who are currently tortured by being uh, ostracized or being threatened or, or, or feeling, I mean, not threatened with anything violent, but just threatened with ostracism for independent, rational, philosophical thought. <laughs> they come pouring in. This tells me why we can't have a state. Yeah. Because people will not go against the dominant tribal ideology. And if that's the state, it means that people will not go against the state, which means the state has room to grow and grow and grow until it destroys society. What that means, of course, in a free society is that you, you don't have that state issue. So conformity will only breed personal consequences. It will not breed social consequences. I mean, if you're in a free society and a bunch of people want to go and create a resource-based economy, fine. You know, I, I would watch it with interest. I think it would be great to see what would happen. And, you know, I'd be happy to be proven wrong about my thoughts about what happens in the absence of money and price. But it wouldn't fundamentally be disastrous for me if it was disastrous for them. I'd care about it. I'd like to help uh, them out if, if it turned out to be disastrous for them. But it's not fundamentally disastrous for me if someone wants to have a different style of society. Well, of course, if there's a state, then that's a huge problem, right? Because if there's a state, then they can't have their society if, you know, democratic capitalism in its current form exists. And I can't have my society if the resource-based economy ends up in the hands of the state because then it's, you know, money is banned and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's what they'd want. I'm just saying that that is the reality. So I know how conformist people are, and I don't mean that in any negative way. It's like blaming human beings for not being 12 feet tall. I mean, it's just, it's the way we evolved, and it has radical and positive efficiencies in our evolution. It's why we're here. You know, I can say, oh, you know, it should have been more rebels throughout history, but there'd be far fewer people if there were more rebels, because the rebels didn't usually tend to last or, or breed. So... I, I mean, I, I do have some dislike of the conformity. Uh, I mean, it is so fundamentally hypocritical, and it, people constantly use philosophical jargon to cover up their own basic conformities. You know, forgive your parents no matter what. Well, it's just general conformity. You know, the elders had the resources. The elders controlled the social discourse. The elders could ban 
people or accept people. And so, like slaves who were told to forgive their masters because they have no other choice, they turned it into a virtue. The meek shall inherit the earth, says Jesus to the slaves. Hmm, I guess the slaves can make slavery a virtue because they can't do much about it. So that's sort of my issue is, is not the fact that people conform. It's that they pretty up their conformity with all sorts of abstract, nonsensical things. And, uh, you know, just need to be, uh, be honest about it and say, I'm scared to go against my tribe. Yeah, I, I respect that. I, I accept that. I understand that. I feel that. That is an, I think that's an honorable position and an honorable thing to say. But what people do is they say, it's a virtue to do X, Y, and Z. You know, we, we want to help the poor. We, no, you know, you don't want to help the poor. You don't care about national defense. You simply don't want to go against the tribe, which I completely understand. I completely understand not wanting to go against the tribe. That's how we're wired. It's how I'm wired. I mean... <laughs> I have a different tribe now. I don't have no tribe. Uh, you know, human beings are social animals for the most part. So that's all my, you know, I, I don't damn the conformity. I damn the sort of self-serving, mealy-mouthed justifications for it. Uh, and, and again, this just comes out of my childhood. I was told that my uh, boys in particular have a desire to compete and dominate, right? And I was told that, uh, you know, we should all, you should resist that desire. You know, boys don't want to sit in rows and uh, do uh, math problems and have tea parties and all that kind of crap. Like all the stuff that is is just killing the brains of boys in sort of modern education that's so focused on girls, right? Boys are basically just perceived in the educational system as broken girls. And you can read uh, Christina Hoff Summers' The War Against Boys for more on this. Right. But I was told when I was growing up to resist my natural impulses. Uh, 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 don't fight, cooperate, share. And uh, don't kiss the girls if she don't, doesn't want to, right? That's, I think that's yeah, some reasonable advice in some ways. Uh, so I was taught to overcome, to use virtue to overcome my biological drives and desires. And I think that's fine. I mean, it was my 11th wedding anniversary yesterday, and we went out and had just a honking meal, like huge. And because, uh, you know, because I don't want to gain weight and I'm over 40, I'm constantly on the edge of hungry <laughs> little snacks just to stave off the beast. And I just, yeah, it was great. Went out, had a giant meal. You know, if I ate one of those every day, I wouldn't be able to fit through a double door in two weeks. But uh, it was really nice. But yeah, most times I have to sort of resist what I want to eat or what my body says to eat. Because, you know, the body's always like, we could starve. So let's, <laughs> let's pack it in. And so, yeah, resisting the biological impulse for the sake of virtue, for the sake of practicality, that's how I was raised. That's how I was taught. I mean, how many times as a kid were you told, don't do, don't do what your impulses tell you to do? And so it's just that society has this whole value and this whole virtue called it doesn't matter what your biological impulses are, do the right thing. And then when we have the biological impulse to conform or to surrender to the power of the elders or whatever, it's, um, it's unusual. Like, it's, it's just very unusual uh, for us uh, to, to be in that situation now where the elders have less power. Um, I mean, they have more power because of political power, but in a free society, they would have less power uh, because they would not be participating in the workforce. They would have their pensions and so on. But in a free society... 
the young and the energetic would tend to have more power, whereas in a status society, uh, the ancient and politically motivated have uh, more power. So anyway, uh, I, this is just a few of the thoughts that I have about that. You will face this conformity covered by hypocrisy everywhere you go. Uh, yeah. There are some places which are more skeptical of the state, sort of South and Central America, but it's in America it's particularly virulent. But uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just uh, well, I can't I can't uh, disagree with what you're saying. Um, I don't know. I just don't know what to do. I don't think there is anything I can do except just stand by and watch watch it go as it goes. Uh, well, sorry, what do you mean far, when you so say sorry? When you say when you say there's nothing you can do, what do you mean? Like in what context? Well, I mean, I I can protest, which I have. I oh, got gotcha. and, and <laughs> use my voice. Uh, but usually it falls on deaf ears, and most people look at people that uh, have anything to say against the state as crazy people. Uh, you're going to well, be But it is kind of sorry. It, it is fundamentally kind of crazy. Yeah. Like uh, like this this uh, Chris Christie thing, right? Where he ordered the or he may his staff ordered the bridge closed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, leading up to the George Washington Bridge as payback, apparently for some mayor of Fort Lee who wasn't going to support. His uh, re-election bid, so they closed the um, the roads uh, leading to his town, so that you know it's a big mess. And uh, yeah, as somebody said on YouTube, uh, but without the government, who will close the roads? (laughs) And the other the other great comment was, um, I wish I wish I'd thought of it myself. It would have been great. But um, the other great comment was, no, no, it's a big misunderstanding. Chris Christie, who's obese. Uh, was going to go on a diet, and he asked his staff to close the fridge. The fridge, not the bridge. And uh, <laughs> But people get, getting all upset about this, but the reality is like once you're on the other side of power, once you're past that bloody veil of where the guns are pointed, you can do whatever you like. Yes. I mean, the mayor of New York was sworn in by Clinton, a truly disgraced public individual mm-hmm. uh, who uh, you know, was uh, impeached and disbarred. And it doesn't matter. He's on the other side of power. Right. He's on the other side of power. Al Gore's personal fortune went up approximately 10 trillion times because of his involvement in global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, an inconvenient truth is an advertisement, uh, which allows him to make money off his carbon credits and, and all that kind of political connections. I mean, it's, all, it's all nonsense. Once you get on the other side of power, who cares? People are yelling, saying, well, you shouldn't do this with my stolen money. Like, well, they've already stolen it. They've already got it. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, the fact that they stole it is the important thing. You know, crabbing at the mafia for what they do after they rip you off is, you know. And most of anything I had to say sense. was in my youth. As I've, you know, aged and got a little wiser, I've realized, yeah, the, the money is already stolen. I don't agree with what they do with my, my uh, the money I pay in my taxes. I don't agree with anything that they do with it hardly. Um, but uh, as, it, as it stands now, yeah, what, what is there to do? I can I can speak my voice I guess as I'm doing now is that I uh, I do believe that there is, it is time for a change and that if people actually stood and, and unison and said that we want our country back uh, they won't they, they won't. won't they won't do it no they won't this, this is like this is like the plan well if if nobody paid their taxes then <laughs> right right or if nobody voted you know well you know I mean just look at the federal level in the in the U S I mean first of all more than half of people don't pay any taxes anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, not paying your taxes is sort of the point of the state. In other words, profiting from the state is the whole point of the state. Democracy cannot work if people can't profit from it. That's right. 
you know, special interest groups and, and you know, this is both um, uh, the poor and the rich and uh, to some degree the middle class and, you know, the teachers unions, yeah, a bunch of teachers unions in the U.S., you know, the teachers won't write recommendations for promising students unless the parents promise to write a letter to the local politician demanding an increase in teacher salaries. Right. They hold hostage a children's future, their children's future for the <laughs> sake of a couple of extra fucking bucks. Oh, these noble and heroic public oh, teachers. I know. It's just wretched. Yeah. And, and, so, um, so, yeah, I mean, look, no, the, of course people aren't going to pay their taxes. <laughs> you know, half you know. of America gets money from the government. Exactly. I mean, they, and, and a significant portion of those people get far more money for the government from the government than they pay in taxes. Exactly. A lot of people don't even pay taxes. They get money back. Yeah, and, and that's they, the whole point. Uh, so say, well, more people didn't. The, it's like you've already got a huge number of people exactly. not paying their taxes, so to speak. Yeah. You have you have a, a huge yeah a huge amount of people, and that's you know, I see these things and the inconsistencies, and I guess I, I just am sickened by it. Is you know people say one thing, but there's another thing. I mean, you take like what uh, gun control. I, I worked with a guy that was you know pro gun control. And uh, he's got an arsenal of weapons, uh, handguns and, and rifles and things. And one of his favorite statements was, well, uh, you know, uh, we, we need our weapons to fight against the government. And I said, I think that, that ship is sailed. Wait, he wasn't pro-gun control. You said he, he was pro-gun he, control. He is pro-gun control. Or, uh, pro, yeah, I'm sorry, pro-guns, but not— Gun rights. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> he's got pro-gun He's pro-gun My... control with a massive arsenal of weapons. But oh, he the police? He's, anti, <laughs> he's anti-gun control. Yeah, I, okay, okay. I woke up. Just about 20 minutes ago or a half hour ago. But uh, you get the gist. Uh, but uh, his, his argument is that, you know, he needs his weapons to fight against the government if they come in and try, you know, try to take his, his freedoms away from him. Uh, I yeah. tell him, I said, oh, that ship's already sailed. I said, what are you going to do? Fire your nine millimeter against the Abrams tank? I, said, I, think that, I think they actually have an arsenal pointed at you saying that they can do whatever they want. That you are going to lose your rights eventually. They're going to come in and take your weapons away from you. And there's nothing you can do about well, it. Well, no, sorry, sorry. Look, that's it's not necessarily true that you just you lose your rights and then the future is just some Orwellian nightmare. Well, I know that. I mean, it may well, happen for a time. It may happen for a time, but there's this this stupid pendulum that goes on. Yes. Whenever people are in dysfunctional relationships. You know, which is um you know, the guy beats up his wife and then buys her flowers and is on his knees in his Stanley Kowalski fashion and apologizes to her. And, and, and dysfunctional people, they can't – they have no connection with other people. They, they, don't, they don't have any of the calm, relaxed, deep pleasure of intimacy. They can't just sit there relaxed and chatting and enjoying the conversation. They are thrill junkies. Yes. Right? That those who lack connection – Seek stimulus. Yeah. It's sort of the roots of all, all kinds of addiction. Those who lack intimacy, particularly with themselves, seek stimulus. And so fundamentally, it's, if you look at society as a whole, I mean, you can just look at uh, China, uh, India, Russia. I mean, they, they had these totalitarian nightmare systems. And now they have significantly more freedoms in many ways than the United States. Exactly. So what happens is, again, because people don't have intimacy, they don't have truth, they don't have knowledge, they don't have good relationships with themselves, they don't have connection with other people. And there's no conformist like the person who has no connection. I mean, they, they seek to hide their lack of connection through conformity because they can't be close to, close to people emotionally. So all they can de- do is be close to them physically. Uh, the herd is always empty, 
And it is the emptiness which drives the herd instinct. And that's why I say to people, know yourself, learn about yourself, uh, figure out your childhood, deal with your issues, and then you'll feel much less of a drive to, uh, to conform. Lemmings <laughs> all look the same <laughs> from a certain altitude. And philosophy elevates your altitude, and you realize that it is sameness and emptiness which drives conformity. Because once you've tasted true intimacy, I mean, conformity is just like someone taking a slow Indian food fueled Jabba the Hutt style dump on your sirloin. So, yeah. so yeah, so I mean, they're not going to, to break this conformity. The idea that these weapons are going to save you from the government and also the idea that we're going to end up in some hellhole forever. No, I mean, there'll be, um, there'll be a crash, there'll be an attempt to conform right. and an attempt to control. And then when that gets bad enough, just as in Russia and just as in India and just as in China, when that stuff gets bad enough, then there'll be a cycle of, of freedom coming back and then there'll be a cycle of freedom. And when the cycle of freedom starts generating all the wealth that freedom does, then that will feed the state more and the state will grow and the state will grow and the state will kill the economy. Yes. And then there'll be a cycle of freedom again. I mean, it's, it's, it's so dysfunctional, it's ridiculous. And it is tragic. Because, of course, the people who, like a woman who's with some abusive guy, I mean, if she doesn't have kids, it's her who's paying the price, right? right? But when society goes through these things, I mean, some poor bastard happened to be born in 1920 in Russia, you know, could well have lived into old age and died before communism ended. Well, that's his life. He's fucked. That was it. Only go around and he's stuck in a dictatorship his whole damn life through no fault of his own. So, again, society, state, statism is a way of turning personal tragedies into national disasters, mm -hmm. and uh, it is tragic. But uh, go ahead. Well, um, I try to ex you know, explain to people with the same mentality exactly what you just said, that you know, this wouldn't last forever. You know, people come at me and talk about the uh, FEMA camps that they've got in place, that they're uh, going to uh, be rounding up Americans and Stripping them of their rights oh, and incarcerating whole families and things like that. Yeah, no, no, sorry. Sorry to be that, – that almost certainly will happen. Oh, of course. Uh, I tell them it's like almost certainly. I mean, though. I said there's, they can I only lock No, it won't last forever, so but <laughs> may last for the lifetime of the people incarcerated. Right. Oh, no question. Like, I mean, so, I mean, FDR rounded up the Japanese, stole all their property and threw them into internment camps right. uh, in the 20th century, uh, even those who'd been multi-generational Americans. Uh, here in Canada, I, I used to work with a guy who was in the military. And when Canada was going to cut its spending, which it did in the 90s in very significant ways, and again, you don't hear about this. I've done a whole show on this with Redmond Weissenberger, who's the director of uh, Mises Canada at Mises.ca. But uh, Canada really did cut its spending. And he told me, we were having lunch one day, and he told me, uh, oh, yeah, you know, we, we in the military were completely gearing up for urban combat mm -hmm. because – when um, when the government was was going to cut its spending, uh, you know there was genuine concern that there might be some sort of revolt, and oh yeah, they were all training for urban combat, for basically doing whatever needed to be done to keep the sheeple in place while the government cut the food ration, so to speak. Yep. And uh, none of that happened. But if you know, if in in America it's more likely to happen because it's got more of a revolutionary, uh, anti-government kind of flavor, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is almost for certain. I mean, they're, they're not just going to give up, I doubt. It's possible. It's possible. And certainly I'm, you know, and millions of other people are working day and night to try and ensure that the people have enough knowledge that tyranny can't return, that people have enough self-knowledge that tyranny can't return, because tyranny is internal, uh, personal, internal to the personality and only then external in society. So, 
But oh yeah, I mean, uh, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, it's almost certain uh, to to happen without significant intervention. That doesn't mean forever, and that certainly doesn't mean for everyone. But uh, I'm I definitely believe that. Well, let me let me ask you this: What do you think the solution is to this? Do you think there is one? Or do you solution to what? To to the problems that we have. Do you have a solution? Is there any? Oh sure, yeah. Any ideas? Yeah, or I mean, it's it's basically on the train car, no, you, taking the ride. No. It, it's 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 the same as if you have a nation of seventy year old chain smokers. Well, you say to the seventy year old chain smokers, "There's not much I can do for you, but what I can use is I can use you as an example of why people shouldn't smoke." Right. So the the majority of people cannot be saved through any kind of reason and evidence, through any kind of argument. It, it, it is not, but it's, it's like trying to turn 70 year old chain smokers into gymnasts. Uh, all you'll do is hurt the elderly and insult the sport. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is why I say, you know, as uh, Winston Smith used to write, if there is hope, it lies in the proles. And if there is hope, it lies in the next generation. It, you cannot get birds to go south for the winter if their wings have been clipped. All they'll do is waddle onto a highway and get smacked. But you can build a rational world on the minds of people who can process reason. And most people's minds have been so shattered and broken by irrational conformity, superstition, nationalism, religiosity, the schools. I mean, they're just, they're smashed up, like physically smashed up. Most people are in wheelchairs. And if you are trying to create... A sport, the, you have to kind of know whether people are in wheelchairs or not. Adjust your expectations and so on. Now, of course, people in wheelchairs can do sports, but it's different, right, than the sports that people without wheelchairs can do. So most people's minds are functionally, irretrievably smashed up by their upbringing. Yes. Right? 80, 90% of kids in America are still getting spanked. 40% of babies uh, how an, a, a spanked are hit before they're even one year old. I know. Hitting babies. This is the fucking world that we live in where people hit babies. I know. They hit babies. And, and, and then we wonder why we have a violent, crime-ridden, self-destructive, oh, yeah. sociopathic, predatory world. I mean, you're hitting babies for Christ's sake. <clears throat> what the hell do you think is going to happen? Oh, yeah, they're hitting them and, and then so, putting them in front of a gaming system to show them how to kill people before they're one, too. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then what you do is you, yeah, and then you remove almost all parental influence and almost all adult influence from their lives and have them focus on being raised by each other, which means raised by the lowest and most brutal common denominator, right? the bullies and the sociopaths as, as, as kids and all that. So, I mean, it's just it's completely bizarre to me that people put artworks into a blender and wonder why they can't hang them on their wall. <laughs> well, you put the fucking thing in a blender. All you've got is Mona Lisa goo, right? Right. And so, you know, we, we shred children's brains and then wonder why we have irrational societies. We shred children's brains and then we wonder why, as adults, it, you know, they, they don't listen to reason. Well, they can't, fundamentally. I mean, you're asking them to do that which is not possible. You are trying to teach calculus to apes. Yeah. 
Oh, that's I've seen that. Uh, I've been going to school. Uh, I'm almost 40, but I've been going to school off and on. Uh, I've got a couple degrees, and as I've gotten older and seeing the the new generation come in and studying uh, around them and being with them, I have noticed the uh, increase in the uh, decline of uh, intelligence. That the new generation, that, uh, let's just say that uh, this last year's uh, new crop of uh, kids that came out of high school uh, going into college know nothing. They do not have a clue. They are hopelessly yeah. lost. And I'm well, amazed. I think of all of, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think of all of the, I think the average boy plays 15 hours of video games a week. Yeah. Now, I was a reader. Wait, I was yeah. a reader partly because we had basically a 12-inch black and white television. Right. And cartoons were on for an hour a week and there were no video games. So what did I do? It's not a virtue. It's just, I mean, I would love to have played video games, but I read, 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 I read. And now people are like, oh my God, you know everything. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but it's just because I, I, I read <clears throat> And now instead of reading, I listen to audiobooks all the time whenever I can. Right. So, so, I mean, the video games have displaced social skills. The video games have, and, and other forms of media, right? Yeah. Uh, they have displaced social skills. They have displaced the irreversible growth in knowledge and capacity to think that comes from exposing yourself to something You're, other than an orc with a flamethrower. I'm sorry. How about, how about an example here? I saw this. I was sitting at a coffee shop reading a book. <laughs> uh, something I, I enjoy to do. I read a lot of things. And I, there was a table. It was a round table uh, down in the basement part of this coffee shop I'm sitting in. And uh, I look over and I see five, six girls, probably in their early 20s, late teens. And they're all just sitting, pounding away on their, their phones, just texting. No conversation. Um, I'm looking at this. I think that's weird. You got all these, these, these people sitting next to each other and not a word being said. And so about 10 minutes of this, I, I, I happen to notice one girl. She, she looks up and looks to her left. or Yeah, it was to her left. Looks at the girl next to her and goes, <laughs> yeah, that is funny. And I, I, was, I was immediately just struck. I was, oh, my God. These people are sitting next to each other, texting each other in a conversation instead of talking. The art of communication. Well, no. Is to be lost. sorry. To be fair. To be fair, they may have been probably they were showing pictures or movies. Something they were doing, but I, there, there's no conversation. I go into places where I used to when I was younger. I would go into places in my early twenties, and people would be having conversations. Talking to you. Oh man, the the amount of time that I jazzed up my system probably irreversibly on coffee shop conversations. Oh, yeah. I, I had a friend. Uh, he was a, a a really great guy in in a lot of ways. Uh, I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants it to be public. But basically, he was um, the son of some very rich Iranian uh, people, mm -hmm. and uh, he was the guy who directed me in Macbeth, and a pretty great guy. And he gave a great speech. We were doing a rehearsal for Macbeth one night, and. Uh, this was uh, way back in the day, and there was a talk that I think it was Iraq had targeted Israel with uh, weapons of mass destruction. I thought they were, I can't remember if they were biological or chemical, and that, you know, we basically were all alarmed that this was going to be the start of a significant worldwide conflict, right? I mean, Israel is a nuclear power, and to attack it, anyway, so. We were all over, and he gave a great speech about basically, you know, we are trying to do something good here with this play. We're trying to do something powerful, 
and evildoers will do what evildoers will do. But if we let them take away our drive to do something good and powerful and even beautiful in this world, then it doesn't matter fundamentally what they do after that. They've, they've already won. I'm not doing the speech justice, but it was a great speech and really motivated us to go back and, and keep working on the play, which I thought turned out to be a very, a very good play. Now, later, he totally undermined it in this very postmodern way. I mentioned this speech as being very inspiring. And he was like, I don't even remember what I said. I just knew I wanted everyone to keep rehearsing. And it's like, oh, why, 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 why did you say more about that? I mean, oh, I wish you hadn't. Uh, but he, uh, he and I would, uh, we, we played squash a lot together. And we also would, would have these coffee shop conversations. I wasn't here for this, but he had one epic coffee shop conversation which he ended up in a hospital because he had 20 coffees in a row. <laughs> His heart started fluttering like a butterfly on steroids. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there used to be tons and tons of, of conversation occurring. And each of those conversations, you know, shapes and benefits you, you know, in, right. in important ways. Now, biologically, the kids are smarter, right? There's this thing called the Flynn effect, which is that uh, the IQ rises a couple of points every generation. For reasons I don't think anyone really understands better nutrition probably and so on. So... They're smarter, but I think that they are, in many ways, lacking some skills that you and I have probably <laughs> taken for granted as growing up in a pre-digital age. But, you know, they have other skills and so on, but everything is a benefit with a cost or a cost with a benefit. But anyway. I try to, I try to have conversations with some of the, the new ones um, and talk about, about life, about philosophy, things, anything. Uh, what their opinion is on things. And I get a lot of people that look at me like, you know, uh, deer in the headlights, just a look of what the hell am I supposed to say? Uh, they don't know how to respond. They don't know how to communicate. They're not sure of anything. Um, I end up sitting most of the time talking to younger generation, being the sole and only person talking. And look, well, yeah. with people uh, with yeah, a look on their face like they hardly know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, for sure, me. for sure. And they don't know how to have the internal stimulation of self-knowledge, the internal stimulation of thinking. I mean, I love me some quiet time sitting on a couch only thinking. And and that doesn't mean thinking about and just waiting for inspiration to strike or uh, thinking about things or or whatever. I, I love me some some meditative quiet time. I don't think there's a huge amount of that uh, in in the younger generation. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of that when I was a kid either, but, um, and of course there were lots of distractions when I was a kid and, and the distractions don't have to be digital. I mean, when I was a kid in, in boarding school, we would go through these manias, like literally tulip manias. There was a marble mania where there was a, a conquerors or chestnut hitting mania. There was a paper airplane mania. We'd go through these sorts of manias and the manias are all about, I don't have anyone to talk to and I don't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of terrifying. I watched a show the other day called, um, happy endings. And in it, one of the characters says, you know, they're constantly doing all this, in, you know, 20 something escapades and all that. And, um, one, at one point, one of them turns to the other and says, what, what, what do you think would ever happen if we had a real conversation? And there was this long pause and then the scene ended or for a more terrifying, a completely terrifying view of the younger generation. Uh, just watch the show girls, mm. which is, a completely, completely terrifying 
view. I mean, it makes Californication look like a Disney film. Uh, it's a completely terrifying view of the younger generation. Just how compl- I, I, I mean, I, I can't believe it's true. I know it's popular. I assume it's exaggerated uh, in the same way that, you know, Seinfeld's New York Jewishness was exaggerated. But it is a completely, completely terrifying view of uh, the younger generation. Uh, these are not people who are going to be fit for anything uh, other than being aimless parasitical hipsters their whole life. Oh, yeah. But uh, I just wanted to mention that. One of my favorites is uh, it's about three years ago. I'm at a friend's house and it's uh, it's fall. And uh, we're, we're sitting on the front porch discussing things. And right across the street from the house he's dwelling in at the time is a fraternity. And they have this big banner over their, their fret symbols and stuff. It says, you know, something, something, future leaders of America. It's the biggest word, future leaders of America. So as we watched this fret, uh, and this is a weekend, uh, throwing their parties, we saw some of the most shocking of things happening and incredibly stupid things going on. Uh, the police were there three times. There was uh, um, fights, uh, people shooting each other with pellet guns. Um, uh, there was an ambulance there. There was lots of puking. People passed out in the front yard. Uh, we witnessed uh, two couples having sex in the front yard and the backyard. Uh, and all of this while we're looking at this sign saying future <laughs> leaders that, uh, of America. What's that old Doris? What's that old Doris song? Uh, I'm a backyard man. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, <laughs> yeah, so a great subject. And uh, I, I actually, yeah, I, when I was in, um, yeah, when I first went to, um, to McGill, uh, I was working up north for the summer doing this gold panning and claim staking and stuff. And I ended up showing up at, uh, McGill, fully bearded, you know, long hair. I was wearing ponytail back in the day. And uh, I got off the, the train at like 5.30 in the morning. It's just the way it happened to work out coming down from up north. And I just had all this luggage with me and I was dragging it. I had nowhere to go. I had no idea. You know, I had nowhere to go, no place to stay, no money for a hotel or anything like that. And I ended up staying for a day or two with an ex-girlfriend before I got a place. And the place that I, I ended up going into a, um, a female, I didn't know it was a female sorority house and just there was like a, a couch and I just crashed there for a little bit. And then I told it, it was, you know, my little brief experience of, you know, homelessness. <laughs> anyway, so I, uh, I ended up uh, renting a room in a frat house because, you know, I had no money or whatever. Right. And I shared a room with a guy. It turned out to be a great guy and we're still in contact. But, um, uh, in, in the frat house, they asked me to join the frat and, you know, which was nice, you know, it's a nice, nice offer. It wasn't really for me. But we did have to leave a couple of times when they had their initiations, mm-hmm. and one of them involved putting your your dick into the barrel of a shotgun, and they they had goats, and I, I mean it was just truly insane. <laughs> and I had a friend of mine uh, uh, who oh, later became a terrible drug addict, uh, but he joined a frat, uh, and the the um, you had to 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 get in, you had to drink a warm beer. Like you know, you had to run around the track and then drink a beer. Run around the track and drink the beer. Every time you ran around the track, the beer got warmer and warmer and warmer. And then you basically had to keep doing that until you threw up. And they collected all the throw up in garbage bags. And then you had to race under the parapet of a wall, like under the archway of a wall. And you had to try and get through. And they dumped your own puke back on you. Ooh. And I mean, oh yeah, I mean frats are. I mean, they're like the nail uh, in no, the coffin. Yeah, I was in one when I was. I mean, they're just monstrous. Early in my life, when I my first school participation i was in a frat too but we didn't do anything that disgusting <laughs> yeah. that's awful 
my goodness, yeah. more, hours of more. Anyway, so. listen, I'm I'm sorry, but we do have a lot of callers. Sure. Uh, pleasant though the chat is, um, a really enjoyable chat. I um, you know, I sympathize with your your desire to find a sane corner uh, of uh, uh, an open world, huh. uh, but um, you know, just the the. The pleasure is in the tribe you can choose. Right. Well, I think that I've I mean, kind of chosen. Just, you know, a long time ago, a long time ago, marriages used to be arranged, and of course, they are still in a lot of places in the world. And then there was this revolution where you got to choose your husband. <gasps> right. A lot of time, long time ago, your occupation was determined by what your father did, and yeah. of course, in many places in the world, and the caste system in uh, in in Hindu uh, India, that's still the case. But now we get to choose our own occupation, so it's just this extension of choice. Just choose your own tribe. That's the only. Suggestion right. I can make. There is no prefab tribe out there for independent thinkers to join. No. I mean, there just isn't. You have to find the people. Maybe you have to cultivate the people a little. Maybe they have to cultivate you where you have, yeah. you know, sandy corners of irrationality that need to be sanded down. But work at uh, finding and choosing your own tribe. And once you have people in your life who are rational, uh, once you have people in your life you can talk to, once you have people in your life you can be close to, Hang on to them, yes. uh, like literally grim death. Sacrifice. I have, I have there handful. is no sacrifice almost too great to keep those relationships. Right. I have a handful, pretty much. I got a lot of people, uh, four corners of the earth, as I say it, but a handful of people on this planet that uh, communicate with almost on a daily basis using Skype and, uh, and other means of uh, communication. But uh, yes, I do. I do have a uh, very wide and dispersed tribe, if you will. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, do you do for relationships? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I remember when I just the last thing I mentioned. Uh, just you know, you go move to where those people are. Yes. Yeah. I mean, seriously, stalk them. As <laughs> I show up in the backseat of their car and scare the shit out of them or whatever. No, but just just find the people and and then just go there. Life is short, you know. We're not wed to to geography. We're not surfs, sure. port and souls with the land. Like I remember when I was much younger, I was interested in this uh, girl, and uh, she was going to go to another town for a school. Now, I had a career, I had a job and all that. And uh, I was talking about it with a friend of mine. He's like, oh, she's going to move away. That sucks. I said, why? He said, well, she's, she's going to move away. So, you know, it's going to be a long distance relationship or no relationship. And I said, I don't see, I, mean, I just moved there. Yeah, exactly. I just like, I just, I would leave my job and I would go and move. If this was going to be the right woman for me, that's what I would do. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't think we, I don't think we accumulate points that we can add to reduce our time in purgatory by withholding commitment from relationships. Uh, I find that with all relationships, uh, this is what I've counseled with good and bad relationships, just commit to the relationship, commit to being yourself, commit to being honest. Yep. Now, if this, you know, if this, if this woman had you know, moved away for, for school, she, uh, she, no, a doctor actually, but if she'd moved away for school and I'd have said, okay, well, I'd like to move with you. And she's like, oh, I don't think that's... Uh, I don't think that's appropriate. I'm going to be very busy. It's like, okay, well, then it's not the right person for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I just, you know, if, if there are people that you like, uh, go, go to them yeah. or ask them to come to you. But be around the people, uh, be, be at least within proximity to oh, them. I'm, I'm going to be coming up anyway. to Canada here probably in the next week. No, I'm just uh, <laughs> anyway. Absolutely. Jumping out of my backseat of my that's car. And, right, right, right. You told me to. Right. No, all right. I told you to. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Well, I hear you. appreciate your time. Um, I will be a longtime listener. Uh, you've got my ear, and I uh, will probably try to call in with maybe something more of a, an in-depth topic next time. 
Oh, I would not, uh, I would not doubt how in depth this topic was, but uh, I appreciate your call, and uh, let's uh, let's see who's up next. All right, Michelle, you're up next. Go ahead, Michelle. Oh dear, it's Hi, the name Steph. that is the name of a song, and what that means is now the song starts in my head, and I must fight to stop it. Anyway, Michelle, my bell, how are you? Mm, don't stop. <laughs> uh, happy anniversary. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Um, I was hoping you could try to help me uh, connect the dots around a difficult personal issue that I'm having. I'm and, all over uh, it. So I have, okay, I have the dots, and I think they might seem kind of random, but I feel that they're somehow related. I think you're going to be able to see it. Uh, and help me. Are see you it. getting ice belly? Um, Wait, hang on. Are you getting ice belly at the moment? Like I find <laughs> that whenever I talk about something that makes me kind of nervous, I get it's like a little little shavings of ice forming in my belly, and I start to feel kind of cold and jittery and excited and all that. Do you, is that you, your speech seems a little wobbly? Are you getting ice belly or something like it at the moment? Yes, exactly. I have freezing cold fingers, and I'm sweating. <laughs> Excellent. That's good. That's good. So what that means is that we are we are we are talking about a topic that is so important to you, Michelle, that we're activating your fight or flight mechanism. So basically, this topic is your tiger, and that's uh, I think that's a great a great place to start. So I, I appreciate you bringing up such a, a an important and sensitive topic, but I just wanted to acknowledge how important it was and. Uh, that I will be extremely rude. No, but I will. <laughs> I will try and be as gentle as possible with the tiger. But uh, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so uh, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally I get a really uh, deep emotional reaction to uh, what I, I, I'm going to call visibility. I don't know if that's really what it is. And it feels like a contradiction or a kind of inconsistency in my character. And uh, it comes out when I'm not thinking, like in the middle of the night. It's like an intense emotional reaction, and I'll wake up suddenly, and my heart is like really pounding, and I'm really tense, and my mind is really racing. Right. And when I, when I then uh, am able to calm, uh, it seems to have a lot to do with ambivalence, invisibility, and leadership. Uh, I write a lot, and. Uh, I've been a writer and teacher for over 15 years now, and uh, so it's kind of a problem because I feel like I'm in this place in my life where there is there's a push in me to to have more visibility, and at the same time, then this comes out, and so then it feels like a torture, and so then I'm asking myself, well, why would you torture yourself like this? It's almost, it almost feels masochistic or something. And uh, I know lots of people have problems with public speaking and, and speaking vulnerably, so I know it's normal. But then so I go back to that, well, you know, it's normal. Everyone feels this. So just, you know, fashion your life and, and your role in, in the future around this. And then I have the other part that says, no, push it, push into it. <laughs> Call up Steph. Right. He'll know. Right. And I do... Well, let me just let me just I mention something before that. I want to ask. Yeah, mm -hmm. let me just mention something before I I want to ask more about the visibility thing. The public speaking thing is 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 important. 
there's an old Seinfeld joke that says people are more terrified of public speaking than death, which means if there's a funeral, they'd rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Public speaking is something that we are uh, attacked for as children. We are humiliated for, right? I mean, if you, how, how many times have you seen this, right? I mean, it's like the opening of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, right? I got spray on shoes. Hey, nerd. <laughs> right? So uh, we, we're mocked. We're humiliated. You, you say something in public, everyone laughs at you. That the, One of the purposes of education, one of the main purposes is to reduce most people's capacity to compete with the ruling class. And the ruling class, as you can imagine, as you see every time on television, makes its money from public speaking. I mean, Barack Obama, you know, with the right teleprompter is a great orator. He's completely ridiculous as a manager and he's completely incompetent to run anything. But he's a great orator and that in, is the source of his power, the media. Right? They're comfortable with public speaking and so on. So um, one of the things that Jews do is they encourage public performance and public speaking, which is why there are so many uh, people who are in the media or in the entertainment business, which is basically the same thing, uh, who are Jewish. And... So one of the ways that we are not to compete with the ruling classes is we are made frightened of public speaking, and then we're never going to pose any threat to the people who make their power out of demagoguing the masses. So you're not afraid of public speaking. You're afraid of humiliation. You, you mean, that, that's important, right? I mean, this is important for everyone. So I just wanted to sort of mention that. But uh, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by uh, invisibility. <clears throat> well, I think when you said humiliation, that is – uh, definitely part of it, uh, and I do think it goes back to my childhood. And my my dad is especially the old school patriarch type, and you know so much so that if I would say that to him, he would take that as a compliment. And you know, so it was very much you know, do as I say, not as I do. And you know, this leadership by stupid sayings, I guess. And. Uh, <laughs> right. Idiot fortune cookies <laughs> shall be your guide, right? One of his favorites Follow was, generally I'm in by, charge. Do as I say, not as I do, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, he loved that one. Yeah, he yeah, liked, I'm in yeah. charge, you're responsible. And I was, nice. I was the oldest. Nice. Uh, my, <laughs> and my parents divorced uh, when I was six. And uh, my mom didn't really like me until I moved out. <laughs> I was a daddy's girl before that, and... Uh, <laughs> So there was, you know, some abandonment issue there. Uh, I right. haven't defood, uh, but I have uh, separated myself very much from my family of origin. And when you've been talking lately about hero worship, this struck me. And this is what I see in my family that's so just unacceptable. And uh, and I think that this is related, like you said. Uh, you asked a question, um, oh, about the invisibility. It's kind of yeah. like uh, I'm it, uh, I'm okay with writing for the most part. Uh, I've been doing it for so long, so it's, it comes natural. But so I'll put something out there that may be particularly provocative. Or, uh, you know, I know is going to stir something. And it's not in the moment. I mean, I feel perfectly fine and rational in doing it in the moment. It comes then in the middle of the night uh, in this All right, reaction. So we have it's to, I'm sorry, always. I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you sure. <laughs> because you're talking around the topic rather than 
Okay. Right, talking about, it's like I'm saying, how do I get to the park? And you're saying, well, the, the park is green and there are nice birds there. And it's like, yes, yes, but how do I get, how do I get there, right? So what is the invisibility when you talk about it? What is it? You say you wake up in the night and you have like, whether it's a minor panic attack or your heart is racing or whatever, but you have to, it's the anxiety that you don't exist or is the anxiety that you don't exist to other people? Because the two are obviously not exactly the same. You know, it's not either of those, I would say. It's more like, uh, it's, well, I can tell you the time that it most recently happened. It, it was uh, when I wrote you that poem, uh, it stirred up a lot of emotion, and uh, that was fine. I, I enjoyed that. It was fun for me for the most part, even the, the stirring of the emotion and getting it out. It was the sending it to you that stirred this, and it happened really strongly, and that's what made me right. want to explore it more. And so what happened was in the middle of the night, uh, over several nights as I'm considering sending it, and then once I had sent it, uh, so I was having that anxiety in the night, and at one point when I woke up, it was you in my head talking to Christina and uh, in a very scathing way about me, like... I was stupid. Would somebody? Why would somebody do this? I don't know how to respond to this. It's very silly and adolescent. Why would she spend her time doing that? That kind of thing. And uh, so, right. you know, then I realized that's the child self talking, and I, you know, try to calm her down. Child, child, wait, wait, say, wait, okay. wait, 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 wait. <laughs> child, child okay. self talking. Did yes. you say? <laughs> Well, because well, I have had some therapy around this. <laughs> no, but sorry, yeah, how is that and, your child self? Okay. Is your child self abusive? Because um, it's really mean, right? Uh, I mean, people that, uh, that you respect that my wife and I would be like rolling our eyes and, and mocking and being being scornful and contemptuous towards your outpouring of, of thought and feeling in a poem – it's nasty, right? So if you say that's just your child self talking, what you're saying is that your child self has the capacity to be nasty and contemptuous and abusive or whatever, right? I would not okay. necessarily agree with that. <clears throat> well, uh, so what happened with the therapy? Where did you get that language that from? I was able. To... No, but where, where did, the, where did that language come from? No. Uh, from where did, no. Sorry. No. What I mean is, where the, oh. the, the language you're talking about, the self-talk about people being contemptuous about your thoughts and feelings. Where did the, the language of contempt come from? You know, I, I I suppose it must have come in from my childhood, and when I was in a rational nope. place later, nope. thinking about no, nope. okay, no, okay. <laughs> your childhood <laughs> is a state of Wrong mind again. and is a time experience. <laughs> it has no voice, right? What what I should be more okay. precise in saying is. Which person in your life taught you that language? I I, I would say probably everyone. I, I would say okay. most people around me growing up, uh, you know, not exactly supportive. And uh, okay, that's more than not supportive, isn't it? That's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are tons of people, tons of people in India who were not supportive of my show because they've never heard of it or don't speak English. That's not abusive, right? Right. Right. There was. 
I don't want to talk around around it. Uh, that's what I mean by the dots. I have these dots. No, no, I'll I'll help you with the dots as best I can. Um, well, first of all, you've already told me. Right. Who okay. it is, right? And the fact that you would project uh, a, a negative response onto Christina and myself, we're, we're both parents, right? Right. And your daughter is about the same age uh, that uh, was when my own family was collapsing. Right, right, right. So your parental alter egos, right, the inner parents uh, within your heart, when you wanted to send a poem to me, your inner parents wished you to remain isolated and therefore they poisoned the well, right? They, they showed or depicted Christina and I being nasty people about your poem so that you would remain uh, isolated, right? So that when you would reach out to someone, they'll say, well, this person is going to hurt you, right? Right. Right. So to get and beyond so it. When you, okay, sorry. Well, hang on. No, I don't even mm -hmm. know what we're getting beyond yet. I'm just, <laughs> we're just starting to, to okay. sort of, sure. we're spraying yes. in the air to find out where the lasers are. That's, I'm doing this little gesture with my hands like you can see it. <laughs> but anyway, we're spraying the, spraying the water <laughs> in the air uh, to find both the lasers and Catherine Zeta-Jones's butt, who um, I already did a video about. But anyway, so when you were a kid and your family was collapsing, what were the symptoms that you remember at the age of four or five? You said they separated when you were six, right? So things are usually rough for years before that, right? Yeah. Um, I know my dad was a traveling salesman then, so I know he wasn't around a lot. And that was, uh, you know, from my mom's side, the reason that she uh, was unhappy. Uh, I guess he was drinking a lot, too. I don't remember that. I, he was uh, a drinker uh, until... Maybe about 20 years ago, he quit. 15, 15 years ago, he quit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I had a lot of responsibility, and I remember liking it. Uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't in the, you know, I get to tell my little sister what to do thing. It was in the I'm needed kind of way. And so, uh, you know, I felt like I... I think now looking back, I was, you know, trying to secure my own safety by being needed because I was the daddy's girl. And so when he left, I was with my mom, uh, who my little sister is much more like her and I was much more like my dad. And so, you know, it was she was she pointed out often how much I am like my dad, usually in the same phrases of, you know, that asshole. How terrifying. So wait a minute. So you were told that you were like your father, and who left who when, when you were six? Do you know? Uh, I don't know how mutual it was. He says she cheated. She, she, you know, he said she said kind of thing, and that was the story they stuck with. All right. And my dad did go on, right. had another family, uh, and I have two, uh, I have a half sister and a half brother. Uh, I also spent a lot of time babysitting them uh, when I visited my dad. Uh, and we kept a relationship up with him all through school and everything, even though he didn't pay 
child support. And that was another issue. They, they would kind of pit us against like, oh, if you can get money from your dad, I'll give you 10 percent or, you know, like to kind of motivate us to get money from him. Wait, you were given a uh, wait, you, your mom were off, your mother offered you a bounty on child support? Yes, yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I so you you became so responsible time, I, I, for getting child support from your from your father? Yeah, not quite successfully. Well, of, of course, course not I successfully, but what? Uh, how, how old were you when this was occurring? Uh, this was, you know, basically all through high school, junior high. When my mom and I weren't getting along at all, I went to go live with him for a year. Uh, and that was just a disaster. It was even worse. So I went back, was either, you know, be controlled by my mother or be manipulated by my father. That's how I felt. And the, it was the lesser, lesser of two evils was direct control. Um, wow. And then, you know, so I, I moved how old away. Were you when you're, I hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. How old, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to just make sure I get, sure. get the answers that, that, that at least I need. So how old were you when you when your mother asked you to get money from your father well, the first time, roughly. I know it's not down to the day, um, but just roughly. I would say right after I, oh, even before, maybe 12, uh, you know, you know, wow. maybe not that young. We knew about the problem of the child support from very from all, all along. I don't think she actually made that particular offer until I was in high school. Okay, but were you asked to ask your father for money earlier than high school? I don't think so. I don't remember specifically. I know maybe I know it, it was a, a topic often that he didn't pay child support. Why didn't she take him to court? I think she tried. Uh, there was a lot of backup. I, I don't think she remained very proactive about it. And my a dad lot kept of backup. Moving. I don't know what that means. Well, because my dad moved state so many times, I guess each time you have to apply in that state. And so, yeah, I'm not really sure of the particulars. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I don't know anything about the legality in particular, but uh, uh, I think if he has a – did he change employers? Is that Because I think you can get this stuff deducted from the salary before your there father even was. sees it, and then it doesn't matter where he lives. There was at one point a talk of uh, garnishing wages. Uh -huh. I don't know why it never happened. I know it didn't happen. I don't know why. Right. Okay. But and uh, when you were with your father, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to uh, say no, go he did change work a lot. Changed and changed work a lot. Right. Okay. Okay. And when you were with your father, for the year, and you said it was worse than your mother, in what way was it worse? You said he was manipulative rather than controlling, but what does that mean? Well, so, uh, I used to get up and help him with his business at five in the morning, and uh, I was just exhausted all the time. Uh, and How was, old were you when you were living very, with your father? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Thirteen? 13, 14. So you were 13. Yeah, you were 13 and you had to get up to help your father with his business at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <sighs> and, uh, you know, again, he had he had 
small children then, so I was babysitting a lot, and I was doing a lot of housework, and so. His name wasn't I Karl Marx, was it? it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so, just sorry, you to didn't that one. one. Yeah, there. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. Um... Oh, I didn't. I didn't understand what was the problem at the time. I just knew that I had to get out, or I was gonna just die from exhaustion. It was the only time in my yeah, life I, mean, I you ever had, uh, had some skin problems. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the one thing that society and schools pretend not to understand is the degree to which dysfunctional childhoods are just fucking exhausting. Exhausting. I was tired my whole childhood. And... It is, it, it, you know, it screws up your sleep. It, it screws up your whole circadian rhythm, your melatonin production, predictability. It is really crazy the degree to which dysfunctional childhoods are exhausting. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a form of torture. Uh, sleep deprivation is a form of torture. And dysfunctional, abusive, overworked, neglected childhoods are exhausting. And it, it's, like, it's like keeping someone up for three days and then saying, hey, Go on to Dancing with the Stars and see if you can compete, right? It doesn't really, it doesn't really work at all. And yeah. this is true in particular in the teenage years for everyone. Teenagers are supposed to sleep in. That's how their brains develop. But you've got to get up and get to school and do all that sort of stupid shit. But, um, so basically, let me see if I can ask what I think is the most fundamental question about the question of uh, visibility. Was there a time, Michelle, that you can remember in your childhood where anyone asked you what you wanted? Mm, well, I wanted to get a job when I was 15, and uh, I didn't have my license yet. And my mom drove me to the job and back from the job until I got my license. And, you know, it was very late at night. She would have to come pick me up at like 11 when it closed, 1130. And uh, I know she did that because I wanted it. And did you get to keep the money that you were making? Yes. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And what about before yes. 15? I did a lot. Of, oh, what? Uh, yeah. Mm, I Somebody remember I wanted you to what change you want schools. Before 15. Yeah. yeah. No, not so much. No, I do remember even before I went to my dad's, I wanted to change schools and that was not an option, even though I don't see. And what still about why when that you were an option? Well, I can tell you why, but it, <laughs> that's for later in the conversation. But why uh, now when you were a little kid, were your preferences solicited? I remember one time uh, when we were driving, this was when they were still together, so I must have been like five. We were driving from uh, in the Midwest from one city to another, and there was an amusement park on the side of the road, and uh, we really wanted to go. And my dad said, okay, we, on the sorry, way back, the if it's still there. Yeah, me and my sister. And uh, right. he said, on the way back, if it's still open, we'll go. And on the way back, it was still open, and my mom did not want to go at all. But my dad took us anyway, 
because he said he would. I remember that very vividly. Okay. So, I remember having okay, the fact that you remember that vividly is is not a particularly good sign, right? Oh, <laughs> why? Why do you think? Mm, we remember good memories too vividly sometimes, don't we? Yes, but I the mean, fact that, that they're like vivid is not a good sign. It is a good memory, but why is it good that it's so? Why is it not good that it's so vivid? Mm, because it's so isolated. Yeah, because like, it's an exception. There were a lot right? of events like that. We see the right, sun right. because there's a whole bunch of the sky that's not the sun, right? Right, right. I also remember the spanking conversation very, very young. I also they was again before they divorced, so I must have been five or so. And what was the spanking conversation? And uh, uh, I remember we were everyone was in a good mood, and we were in the living room. And uh, it was my little sister, so she must have been about three. And there, I don't know what happened, but my my dad or someone must have said something. I think it was to my sister of knock off that behavior, or you're going to get spanked. And I looked at my dad and I said. You say that, but you don't ever do it. And he said, "And he said, well, we we did when you were younger, and then when you reached age of reason, I guess he was seeing three or so, then we stopped doing it. And then, uh, and I said, well, well, show me, show me how you spanked me. And uh, he put me over his lap, and it was in a joking way. It was all very joking, and he just tapped me very, very lightly. And I was like, oh, that's not so bad. And I'm feeling like myself, oh, I've been scared of that all this time. That's not so bad. But then uh, my sister was there and she was saying, me too, me too. And so my dad did the same thing to her and he swatted her heart. And I'll never forget this. I was Ooh. just like so shocked. I was like, I, and I felt like, oh my God, I just made her get hit like that because this was my idea the spanking conversation was my conversation and i knew as she started crying how, how so astonishingly and how astonishingly screwed up is that hey hey we're all having fun and then you ask a serious question so first of all you were being hit hard before you were 3 right i assume on the buttocks is that right i guess so because there was never a question later on of it, Yes. Okay, so you were being uh, hit hard, I assume, on the naked buttocks before you were three. That's deranged, obviously. Uh, and then your father, when everyone's having a good time, betrays your sister. Because he does a little tap for you, which is a betrayal of you. Because what it's doing is it's saying... You have nothing to be scared of. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Michelle, it was not a little tap when you were a baby. You weren't. So he's basically, he's saying, you have no reason to be scared. You're making it all up. It was just a little tap. And that's not, but that's not spanking. I would, you know, when my daughter needed to be burped when she was a baby, I would put her over my shoulder and I would tap her on the back. That's not spanking. You can get a massage with people blah, 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 right doing that thing on your back with the side of their hands. That's not assault, right? So 
he's betraying you by telling you that he never hit you, but he did. And then he betrays your sister by hitting her when he only tapped you. Do you see? This is a two shotgun betrayal. Mm-hmm. And seems kind of sadistic to me. Yeah, it does. So, this hero worship question, does it seem like, you know, because we were still, you know, required to respect him, and, you know, he was, you know, the family man, I mean, everything was about the family, and how important family is, and and now still, the family still kind of treats him and he still acts in that way, even though the family's kind of a mess and all over the place and divorces here and there and many divorces, I should say. In your family. Well, of course. Yeah, of course. I've imagined that the the template for masculinity that the women choose is pretty bad, right? Yes. uh, You know, for for my dad, it's you. You aren't a man unless you are impenetrable. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm going to use a term here that is strong, and I hope you will forgive me if it's too strong. But the demand for respect is to me the equivalent of respect rape. The demand for sex against the wishes of the victim is rape, obviously, right? The enactment of sex. The demand for respect against the desires of the child is respect rape. Because it is directly against the wishes of the child. The idea that I would demand my daughter respect me is so incomprehensible to me, I I can't even explain how insane that, that is to me. Well, he used to say a lot growing up, though, that he wasn't, that his father was like that, or that people, some people were like that, but that he felt respect needed to be, this is something he always used to say when we were growing up. And I guess this is where the whole hypocrisy, I mean, I'm absolutely obsessed with hypocrisy, and it's because I just lived it for so long that he would say that respect must be earned. Sorry, sorry. Oh, so he said respect must be earned? Yes. But then he would demand respect. Well, he, I'm sure he would say he wasn't demanding respect, that he was earning it. In his mind, he's earning but that's it. Not, no, but that's not, his, that's not his choice. It's not his right. choice whether he's earned it. It's, right. it's, the, it's, the, it's the choice of the, the person who may or may not give him respect. I mean, that's like me writing my own paycheck and expecting to cash it. I mean, what am I, the Fed? (laughs) My show is worth precisely what people donate to it. I can make a case that people should pay more, but fundamentally it's worth what people will donate to it. That's it. 
I can't say that people are evil for not donating to the show. I can make the case. But I cannot, I cannot say respect must be earned. I have earned it, and therefore you owe me respect. That's an entirely narcissistic, self-contained equation with no reference. It's literally like this is exactly what it's like. It's, it, let me tell you this. It's like I, have a, I run a drugstore, and there's a tube of toothpaste with the price tag of a million dollars on it. Somebody walks into my store, and I then won't let them leave until they give me a million dollars for the tube of toothpaste. And I say, well, that's the price. I put the price sticker on it. Therefore, that's what it's worth. Therefore, you must give me that. No, the, the tube of toothpaste is worth what people will pay for it, not what someone's price tag is. Right? Yes, that really makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, it is, he, he feels that he deserves respect, I think, because he it works very hard. He, he's, a, he's always been a workaholic and, you know, this big Protestant work, work ethic, I'm, you know, so because I work hard, therefore I deserve respect kind of thing because I am successful. Oh, okay. So wait, 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 wait. So he's a workaholic and so he works very hard and you say that he places great value on family, right? Right. Okay. So let's put these little things together, right? So if he works very hard and he places great value on family, he must have worked very hard to learn how to have a happy and good family, to learn how to be a good father, to learn how to be a good listener, to learn how to legitimately gain respect and love from those around him. He must have worked super hard to be a good husband because the foundation of a good family is the relationship between husband and wife. So he must have read tons of books. Obsessively, he must have read tons of books on how to have a good family, how to be a good husband, how to be a good father, because he's a workaholic, you see, and he places great value on the family. Was that the case? No, not at all. No, I guarantee you that he read no books on the family. He read no books on parenting. He read no books on marriage, and he did not go to therapy. Am I right? That's right. So he's not a workaholic. Yes. In things that, that, that actually matter, which is not how many dollars you have, but how much love you've, you've got. Yes. Yes, and there's part of me that, you know, because I haven't you know, formally said my piece and no one really knows exactly how I feel, except maybe my sisters. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I want to, there's part of me that wants to be the one that's, that tells him that you don't deserve this. You don't deserve to be the patriarch. And then, you know, there's the other part of me that says, well, that's really pointless. Why on earth would you do that? <laughs> it would solve absolutely nothing. Okay, solve absolutely nothing. So for you, hang on, for you to be honest with your father, Mm -hmm. and honesty doesn't just mean your feelings, obviously honesty, you have questions about your dad and for your dad. 
you know, why didn't you pay child support? Why did you leave mom? Uh, how often did you hit me when I was a baby? You know, these are questions that you have, right? And they're perfectly fair and valid. My, my daughter can ask me anything. And, she, I mean, you know, age-appropriate answers and all that, but she, you know, will regularly ask little Steph to come and live with her because her parents are super great and my mom was not, uh, which is a lovely and touching <laughs> gesture. But you have questions for your father which are very important to, to, to get answers to. Some of the questions, some of the answers that I got from my parents and and some of the avoidances of the answers that I got were incredibly important to me and I you know we need to get the truth of our history or we need to get the truth that we cannot get the truth of our history that's also important but so yeah you can tell your dad how you feel you can ask him questions wouldn't that be a very helpful and useful thing but it's terrifying right Yes, it is terrifying, but I feel, you know, I'm 45. I feel kind of like, I don't know, the, uh, maybe this is the same ambiguity from before, but what am I going to learn that I don't already know? I know that nothing is going to change. I know that nothing I say will uh, uh, penetrate him. I, oh, I really Michelle, can't Michelle, imagine. Michelle, Michelle, no, no, no. You, you, I would again. You can do whatever you want. I'm simply giving you my ideas. I can't tell anyone what to do, particularly in these situations. But you are not clear with your dad. You are not clear about your dad. And I say that because of of a number of reasons. I think that some of the things that I pointed out in this call are kind of new to you, like the double betrayal with your sister and the spanking story. And the whole betrayal of the family by turning a fun time into a shitty time. There's actually three betrayals. Mm. So that was yeah. kind of new to you. Uh, asking about, like when I pointed out that your vivid memories of good times are important because of their vividness. That was news to you. And also, Michelle, you referred to yourself as a daddy's girl. Right. right. Well, back That's then. not good. But no, but, but you, you refer to yourself now as a daddy's girl back then, but that's unprocessed. Because I don't think that you know what daddy's girl means in this kind of relationship. Right, okay. Like too eager My to please daddy, is, is this what you're saying? Well... I would guess, again, it's all just a guess, but I would guess that you were served up to serve the narcissistic needs of your father at your own expense. Yes. You had to placate, placate and appease him for fear of violence, uh, of beatings uh, for you, of uh, disruptions, of abuse, that you had to go and appease this guy, and he chose you as the victim to be appeased, to appease him, and your mother chose you as the victim to appease him. And I think saying, I was forced to appease my father for fear of his temper is a different than saying I was a daddy's girl. You're right. 
it's very different. And that's what I mean when I say, yes, you say, well, I know some stuff and, and you know, what would it change? Well, what it would do, I think it was, it, it would give you an accurate understanding of your, of your history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, or as really somebody seeing... said in the chat room, daddy's girl. Yeah. Sorry. Somebody said in the chat room, daddy's girl equals surrogate mother. I don't know whether mm-hmm. that's true or not, but it's an interesting thought. But when he was when he was going through his second divorce, I was uh, that was probably the closest time I was ever with him. I was just starting in college. I was probably my second year of college. And he was having a very, very hard time. And then I definitely did become like kind of a surrogate, I would say, because I was listening to him about the problems and trying to take care of, you know, his his my half sister actually moved in with me for a short time. Uh, I don't know, six months or maybe more when I was in college. And, and again, like there's very little parenting happening. It's my whole childhood. And I would like to ask you about one more thing that really seemed to me as off and to see if you also feel that way. Is that all right? Yes, of course. So it has to do like, is another hypocrisy around sexuality and I was a very, very Wait, curious. Wait, well, sorry, you said, sorry, sorry to interrupt. You said another mm-hmm. hypocrisy around sexuality. Did I miss the first one? Oh, I, I was just mean because before the hypocrisy was around, you know, the respect thing. Oh, like another hypocrisy, uh, but this time around sexuality. Yes, okay, again, time, so yeah. I just wanted to be clear. I didn't miss anything. Yeah, go ahead. And I, I, I remember several uh, distinct uh, things that felt very uncomfortable to me even though I don't remember any sexual abuse. And I think it also helps nowadays to think about this because this pornography is so prevalent now. But I know that I was, I first saw hardcore pornography when I was very young, like 11, I want to say. And uh, again, I saw, uh, you know, my mom had the erotica in, in the bathroom and, you know, I, I was in charge of cleaning the bathroom. So it wasn't like I was snooping, although that was constantly an accusation that I'm like, why am I snooping? And there was no snooping happening. I was in charge of cleaning the bathrooms. So it was very obvious. But then my stepfather's stash, which was hardcore pornography, was in the basement. So in this case, I really was snooping. But when I say hardcore pornography, I mean, it's like as hard as I've ever seen to this day. And this was my first introduction to sexuality, basically, to, to, to couples, although that's not really what was happening. And then, you know, well, so well, sorry, I, I'm not, again, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be overly purient, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure what you mean by hardcore sexuality, because I mean, so, pornography obviously has the whole range. Right. Uh, and and some of it is sex and some of it is abuse. It was abuse. It was now, you could argue that all of it bondage. is abuse and all that, but oh, so, so kinky stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, hang on. Sorry, so I just want to make really sure. So, was it out. like, hang on. Sorry, I just, again, not to be overly prurient, but I'm sort of trying to understand what it is that you were exposed to at the age of 11. Um, was it um, like bondage with people with like those, I didn't even know what they called, those balls in their mouth? Was it people pulling on hair? Was it, I mean, was it uh, sadism? Uh, was it uh, uh, masochism? Was it, uh, again, I'm just trying to get a sense of, of what you were exposed to. Well, I, he, I think he had the whole collection going there. 
Uh, but the ones that stick out in my mind were the sadistic ones, like uh, what you're saying, uh, bondage, humiliation, uh, yes, to implements. Like sort of mild um, physical torture, like like yeah, wa and candle wax on that kind of stuff? Like, um, like also uh, gangbang type stuff. Oh, and with the woman sort of in a victimized position? Yes. And so I, lots I, of I, men, double penetration, and a woman in a victimized position, is that right? Yes. And I do remember that these were the, out of all of his collection, these were the ones that I most felt drawn to. I don't know why. I was obviously very young, maybe just because it was so bizarre. And so... Well, and also, can I tell it, you something first of all, uh, about sexuality? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me just tell you, I mean, again, I don't mean to lecture you on sexuality, but the sexuality that we're exposed to as children, and hopefully it's really nothing, but if we are exposed to sexuality as children, then it imprints upon us as that which is sexually desirable within our tribe, right? So every tribe may have different sexual practices or, you know, so, so like in Spanish culture, it's a big butt. In some cultures, it's boobs. In, and, and and so on, right? So every culture may have different, like there's this one tribe in Africa where a long neck is considered to be attractive and therefore they put these steel hoops on the women's necks to elongate them to the semi-giraffe status to the point where the women can't even hold their own necks up without, like in Victorian England, it was a thin waist. So they had these whalebone corsets that would mash the inner organs to the point where women would lose their abdominal muscles and die far more often in... Uh, in childbirth and so on. Like Kim Kardashian recently tweeted a picture of herself with a friend of hers and they, they these two giant butts. To me, that's gross. <laughs> that is not an attractive butt to me. Uh, it looks like something that, that you should apply anti-inflammatories to uh, or, you know, cut to, to reduce the size of or something. look like something that needs to be lanced uh, or something like that. So... But but for a, a lot of people in a butt-centric culture, that's just like hugely attractive. To me, it looks gross. But, you know, again, I'm not in that sort of butt-centric culture. And so the first sexuality that we're exposed to imprints itself upon us as that which is sexually desirable within the tribe. So this is probably one reason why it's so vivid for you. Does, does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. It does. Uh I, yeah, I, it's hard to know exactly like, what I was thinking at the time. I, I certainly never thought of it. Like, I always thought of it as my fault. Like, I'm looking. I shouldn't be looking. I know I'm not supposed to be looking at this. Um, right. And so I think about kids today. And, you know, that was like magazines in the basement. I really did have to go look. But now it's all over the place on the Internet. I, I and I wonder what you think about that. Like, would you consider that a form of sexual abuse? Well, just before we get into that, um, and again, please don't answer anything you're uncomfortable with, but would you say that your exposure to this material when you were, I guess, pubescent or prepubescent, do you think it had an effect on your adult sexuality? Uh, I know... I don't think it does still to this day, um, but I've been married for a decade and, you know, happily married. Um, but 
I do know in my at my twenties, I certainly uh, I had always a boyfriend or you know kind of a you know group of suitors. Let's say not so. I mean, I was monogamous, but I, I kind of knew that there were ones in the background waiting. And I see now, you know, that that came from father issues and and maybe sexuality issues. Um, but yeah, at the t- I don't know. Otherwise, there were a couple more episodes that I remember around just feeling like the, there's something. The undertones of sexuality were very unhealthy. And one time was when my I was the period that I was living with my dad and my husband was also living there. She's three years older than me and she's very beautiful. And uh, so at the time, like I said, I was you know, 13, 14. So she was like 16 or so. And uh, so my dad was having a big party and he wanted us to dress up like French maids. So we did. And, uh, you know, this is very sexy outfit uh, for, I think now I, look back at the pictures and I remember how I felt and I was very uncomfortable. And, uh, and now sorry, I look at the pictures too. Then? And I, 13 or so 13, 14, not uh, 13. I must've been. So 13. your father had you, your father had you dress up in sexy made little French made outfits for a party to, to serve cocktails and, and stuff at this party at his party. <sighs> and he paid us oh, for this. Wait, I just feel job. like, I, I feel like my entire skeleton has turned into a millipede. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to give you my visceral reaction to that. Well, good. I'm glad that's you pretty, do that because I, that's kind of how I felt. Uh, and then when uh, they were taking oh, wait, pictures, I got another body chill. Hang on. <laughs> right. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, wait. Let me give you another one because in the pictures we were told to pout. Oh, please do. <laughs> just kidding. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what I really remember. He's, you know, they're like, okay, pout. Like you're supposed to put on this kind of sexy pout. And uh, I mean, I was just beside myself already. Like, I don't even know what that means. And you can see in the picture that I'm like grimacing. <laughs> Uncomfortable. Because I could f- feel, yeah, I felt the, even though I couldn't explain what was making me so uncomfortable, I definitely felt it. And it's dangerous. Right. It's dangerous to parade yes. your 13 year old girl around a bunch of guys dressed as a sexy maid and telling her to be sexy. It's dangerous. Yes, and so On here's one so more. Many <laughs> yeah, go ahead. That sticks out in my. Are mind. you feeling visible now? Was when I was, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> naked is a state of mind. <laughs> so ten years, or I was probably ten or eleven, and we were going to my grandma's house. Oh, me and the cousins, uh, we were all very close when we were younger, and my cousins are older, uh, and uh, we were all staying in the room guest room together. And all the drawers were empty and we were going to put our clothes in. So we put our clothes in all the drawers and all the drawers are empty, but one on the nightstand. And in the nightstand is the book, The Happy Hooker, which is like. Xavier you know, Hollander. If I, yeah, that was a book <laughs> big in the seventies. Yeah. So we're thinking of course, Oh, Oh, it's a big mistake. And you know, we're going to read this book uh, together. And my little sister was you know, too young. She just, you know, didn't even get it. Uh, but my my older cousin, she's five years older, you know, she got it and we were reading passages and not supposed to be doing that. But later on, I started to think, well, wait a minute, 
every drawer was empty. Like, obviously, she knew the book was in there. She had to have known. Right. The room is spotlessly clean. Every drawer is empty. And the only thing in there is that one book. Right. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's a plant, probably, right? Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. But nobody thinks twice about this stuff in my family now. No, and in, in the really 70s. asking the questions. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but in the 70s, uh, sexually explicit material was everywhere. I mean, again, I, I don't know now. What do I know, right? But, yeah, it certainly was in my little apartment. Uh, sexually explicit material was everywhere. Uh, I remember reading that book as a kid. Um, my mom had other books and magazines and pictures. And, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really, you know, there's this movie called The Ice Storm where they talk about the key party. Like you go and you have a dinner and then you take each other's keys, car keys, and you go home with that person and have sex with them. And it is, uh, it was, um, I, I have this sort of impression of the 70s as a pretty sexually sick time. And there's a variety of reasons which we kind of, it was the dark side of the free love of the 60s, which had its own dark side as well. It also had a lot to do with marital breakup uh, and all of that. But it was a time when sexuality was being socialized in a, in a weird and creepy way. It was a time of the breaking down of the barriers from adult sexuality to child innocence, which I think are very important to maintain. And so, and yeah, as someone has pointed out, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey continues that, but basically it's a novel about pedophilia because the woman is um, a child. I mean, you might as well give her pigtails and a lollipop and call her Lolita. And there was a lot of uh, kinky, weird stuff going on in the 70s uh, in, in households, and, uh, and not just mine. Um, I remember a friend of mine uh, staying over at his place one night, and in the morning his single mom had been playing... Uh, um, Scrabble and left it all out and the Scrabble was like all sex words, right? And so it was um, it was a pretty kinky time and uh, I'm really sorry for all of that. I'm sorry for this exposure to what, what I would think is, is some pretty sick sexuality and I'm sorry for the spanking. Again, spanking, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, uh, creates uh, sexual dysfunction. Uh, exposure to bondage uh, at the age of 11, uh, yeah, I consider that abusive. I think that to leave that material around in any place where a child can find it uh, is uh, incredibly destructive. So I am uh, I'm very sorry about that. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for letting me talk about all of that. There's such a... a, a you know, kind of, I don't know if you call it double standard, but when we think of, you know, boys looking at this stuff at that age, we don't have the same reaction, I think, as when we think about girls. And I wonder why that is. Like if it's somehow less unhealthy for boys to be exposed at a young age compared to girls, which it seems to me it would be equal. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty bad. I mean, male sexuality is a little different from female sexuality. Uh, obviously, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to say obvious like, like everyone should know it, but I mean, uh, a woman to, to raise a successful child, a woman really needs commitment from a man. She needs more virtue, whereas a man needs more fertility because a man, obviously sperm are disposable and, you know, 
and uh, to some degree men are disposable because there's always someone else willing to have sex. So a man needs fertility more and a woman needs virtue, like the capacity to provide, to protect, to shelter, to bring resources while she's pregnant and having uh, endless kids and breastfeeding and, you know, it's just kind of unfit for work in many ways. So a woman's sexual standards need to be higher than uh, a man's, which in turn raises the man's, right? So, so virtue in, in romantic relationships uh, starts with women needing virtue from men. And as a result, men strive for virtue in order to pair bond with a woman. One of the catastrophic things that the welfare state has done, and it's no accident that after um, the, the feminist revolution of the 60s saw the family collapse of the 70s, which was made possible by the welfare state of the 60s, again, right? I mean, couldn't really have as much family breakdown without the government picking up the tab for the single moms, which is really the foundation of the welfare state. What's happened is women's need for virtue has collapsed, and with it, male virtue has collapsed, which is why you have these uh, endless man boys who can't seem to grow up and become responsible. And, and uh, so it, it is, it, it was a tragic decade. And, and the result of state funded and CIA backed feminism and the welfare state uh, and a variety of other things, uh, a lot to do with debt. And uh, it, it destroyed what was left of some of the good conservative virtues uh, that that sort of were around prior so uh, i uh, yeah i'm sorry i mean it's you and i i think and you more than me got swept up in this flesh abuse hedonism of the 70s that was unleashed by the massive extension, expansion of state power in the 60s <clears throat> so okay and thanks again for empathizing with me uh uh, back to the original question, then, uh, as far as connecting the dots. So don't. Sorry, what I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So th when you refer to yourself as a daddy's girl, and then you talk about him teaching you how to be sexy in a French maid outfit, you get that that's a whole other dimension of creep, right? Yes. 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 <laughs> right. And and now I can see now that I'm actually hearing what you're saying and and voicing all of this. I can see how that panic in the middle of the night could be related to all of this because when you're visible and the more visible you become, obviously the more, uh, you know, uh, risk that you're taking and maybe that is what's happening. Well, if you were being groomed at the age of 13 as a sexual object on display for other males, then visibility would be a problem, would be a danger, right? Right. You know, if right. the drunken woman's dance. breasts are visible at the at the uh, at the frat party, then her visibility is kind of dangerous, right? Yes, right. What sorry you were saying? Oh, uh, just as a kid, I was always in dancing school, and I danced on stage a lot, and I was also in that age where you know, 16 years, you know, you're, you're, tra you're kind of transitioning from, you know, little girl dancer to what's available as a big girl dancer. And that's when I quit. And so maybe that has to do with it too. Worst name <laughs> you know, for in a other strip words... club ever. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, the worst, well, no, the worst name for a strip club is little girl dancer. The second worst is big girl dancer. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. 
and maybe that uh, I enjoyed doing it. And, and and there was always the nervousness before going on stage. But once I was on stage, you know, the body takes over and the mind can be blank. And you can't do that when you're public speaking. The body doesn't take over. The, the mind still has to be thinking. Look, and the fact that you have panic attacks at nighttime when you lived in a highly sexually inappropriate household may not be unrelated. Right. So maybe it has nothing to do with. And what the, I, I don't mean, I don't mean necessarily that you were sexually. I don't mean necessarily that you were sexually abused. I don't know. But what I mean is that right. you may have woken up if if your stepdad was into bondage and torture sexually. I mean that's a highly disturbed personality in my opinion. But you may have heard, you know, ugly, painful, vicious sexual sounds in the middle of the night. Mm. Actually, never thought about that. <laughs> or you may just have not felt safe. Like you, you may just have not felt safe in that house at night as a young woman. Whether anything happened or not, I don't know. Obviously, I mean, that's not for me to say and, and so on, but I could certainly see why you'd feel uh, a little nervous. Right, knowing that your stepdad at least was into weird, kinky, brutal sex and also that your mother, which, you know, we've talked almost not at all about your mom and we could probably do mm -hmm. another hour on that, but uh, I'm certainly no therapist, so uh, that I think would be something to take up with a therapist. But, You've been completely silent about your mom, and as I talked about in a show that I think is yet to be published, um, your mom chose these men. Right. And uh, they, they were in your life because of your mom. So um, we haven't really talked much about her, but this is someone else. Like, how the hell did you expose me to men like this? What the hell's the, like, what, what's the matter with you? And you can ask about her history and find out what happened with her as a child. And I can guarantee you, uh, or at least virtually guarantee you, based upon the inevitable physics of intergenerational dysfunction, that she had, uh, you know, a veritable boatload of Uncle Spanky Fingers creepy guys around her when she was a kid. And this is what she got used to. And this is what she normalized by not being upset about it. And thus she reproduced that for you and all other kinds of creepy stuff. Yeah, that's FDR okay, 2582. So... I've got a good speech about females' role in the cycle of dysfunction, oh. uh, which again, you know, okay. I talk about women's role in the cycle of dysfunction and people say, well, what about men? And it's like, we already talked about men for about the last 10,000 years. What we don't talk about is women. So excuse me for trying to bring it up to 50-50, but sorry, go ahead. No, I, I completely agree. And I realized before that a lot of the focus is on my dad. Uh, and when I talked to my husband and stuff, i also said it's interesting how I just kind of leave my mom out of it or even think about talking to my mom. It's like a whole different level of nervousness or anxiety because, you know, I can picture myself yelling at my dad <laughs> or being angry, you know, no, the, getting the, out the prime anger. mover, the, the, the prime mover in the formulation of the family are the women. Women right. choose no, the men. That. Men will ask a lot of women, I know this, men will ask a lot of women out, some women will say yes, some women will say no. And unless it's rape, the woman has decided the man to marry. I assume that your mother did not look like the ass end of a troll, right? No. <laughs> no. She I assume very, that she very was very actually very attractive. 
<clears throat> yeah, well, I understand she was. that. And, and the fact my... that she got married young and you were sexually displayed at a young age is probably not unrelated, right? Right. But I assume that she was quite attractive. Yeah. And and this is tr- in general, in general, and I you know I I generalize, and uh, you know fifth rate thinkers can find exception to that. But uh, you know, hey, a lot of a lot of Japanese people are kind of short. I know a tall Japanese guy, so you're wrong. Anyway, that's not you. <laughs> it's just all the idiots out there. <laughs> but um, in in general, the, the 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 equation that I use is the more asshole the dad, the more pretty the mom. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Oh, well, that fits. <laughs> and and I've, I've seen this repeated so many times, so many times, that it's not quite a law of physics, but I've yet to find a significant exception. The moment that you did was your dad was financially successful, I would assume, right? Yes. Right. So he uh, buys up and down. Uh, yeah. 36, 24, 36, and he buys even features, and he buys lustrous hair with his financial success, and his financial success came in general out of him being a jerk. Uh, and being neglectful of his family, uh, and being a dominant uh, guy, and being kind of bullying, and and all that kind of stuff, and uh, so yeah, I mean, the prettier the woman, the jerkier the guy. In general, there are exceptions. Blah de, blah de, blah. I'm not calling every woman with a nice husband ugly, and I'm not saying that everyone who married a pretty <laughs> woman is a jerk. I think my wife is gorgeous, but but I'm just saying it's uh, in general, it's it's not a bad rule of thumb. So when when people say to me, well, my dad was like this, I know all about their mom. So. Well, this has been really helpful uh, because I, I see maybe what the block is that I've been wanting to skip over some of this stuff, especially the confronting them with it. I was thinking it was okay to do that because, you know, I'm, I'm older, I don't have kids, I don't... I, they don't have any hold on me. They don't ask anything of me. And so I thought I could have a hold. Of course they have a hold on you. Come on, come on, come on. Don't, <laughs> don't end our conversation with something so unenlightened. Of course well, they have a hold on it's you. It's much worse. They're your parents. They will always have a hold on you. Yeah. But we're not talking about That's your true. sisters, and they're not calling this show. <laughs> don't give me right. the, uh, you know, I only live on 500 calories a day, but there are people on India who live on less. You're still hungry, right? Of course, look, if they if they had a didn't have a hold on you at all, you'd be able to have any conversation you want with them. If they didn't have a hold on you at all, you'd be able to be frank and clear about your relationship with them. Which you're not as yet. You're quite clear, but not, right? 60-70%, right. but a ways to go, right? And I say this as right. a guy who's still not 100% with with my own family of origin. You know, I used to be frustrated sometimes that the most beautiful women wouldn't go out with me when I was younger, although one or two did, but most of them. And now I'm like, well, thank God. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, beautiful women for wanting assholes. Because uh, anyway, <laughs> oh, thank you. What a relief. But, uh, but no, of course, look, they have massive, massive effects on you, and that will never change. It will not even change after, after they're dead. Right. I, I, be, be clear on that, because otherwise you may have an, a, a standard called, well, I'll achieve mental health when my parents don't have any effect on me or when I've that's not possible. It's no more possible to untangle your parents effects from you than it is for you to stop learning English, to stop understanding English, to stop mm-hmm. knowing how to speak English. Right. That's that's your native tongue. You for the rest of your life. Wow. 
you know, unless you get dementia or some horrible brain injury or disease for the rest of your life, Michelle, when someone speaks to you a sentence in England, in English, sorry, or England, I guess, would you, will you be able to not understand it? Right. Yes, I hear exactly what you're saying. And I, it has, I've had times too, where somebody has said something to me innocently and I immediately took it wrong because it reminded me of something like, you know, you know, oh, you're so eager to please. And they're saying it as a compliment. And I'm immediately taking it defensively. Like, oh, I'm being, I'm being too nice. I'm being too eager to please. And I better back off. Right. Right. So, and so, this is why parental relationships are so challenging. We cannot, we cannot eliminate the massive effects that our parents have on us for good or for ill. Right. I, I can't be around my mother because she has a dominatingly powerful effect on me, which will never change. If my mom screams at me, my physiological response will never change. Mm-hmm. And, and since you know to imagine that... that I can be around my mom and not have the history I had with her is, is irrational. I'm not saying you're suggesting it or whatever, but that's what I'm saying. Like, Parents have such powerful, fundamental, irreversible effects on us that if they remain destructive, it is to our peril. We cannot rise above that. That's impossible. But couldn't because we we've got get twenty over years of formative to... experiences? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, and I just wonder: couldn't we get over it without actually having to have the confrontation? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I found the confrontation to be very helpful because with the confrontation comes certainty comes closure. Right. Closure doesn't mean right. the end of the relationship. It means I now understand it for what it is, for better or for worse. Okay. Nobody has to have this conversation. Like I got this tortured message on Facebook from a guy, uh, let me see if I can find it, just the other day, where he was talking about, you know, I would like the blue pill back kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I can, you know, I can, I can understand that. I really, <laughs> I mean, I really can. It is, uh, it is tempting. Uh, but um, yeah. the reality is that, uh, well, A, you can't go back. I mean, it's sort of a dream. You can't unlearn something. And uh, uh, Mike, do you mind, uh, actually, Mike, do you mind having a quick look? Um, I think somebody posted it on Facebook or in my inbox. So if you can have a quick look for it, just so I don't sure. lose um, connection with, with the caller. You don't have to have the conversation at all. But the important thing is that you consciously decide with full clarity that you're not going to have the conversation, right? Uh-huh. So you, you fully say to yourself, I am never going to talk about what I think and feel with my father. My father will, I, I consider my father incapable of handling the truth about me without being abusive. I am now going to fake everything with my father. I am now going to pretend to be someone else with a different history and strenuously avoid any real connection with my father from now until he's dead. That's all. Yeah, Just I be will... conscious of yeah. it. All is permitted with full knowledge. And permitted is a silly term because there's no deity or philosophy is going to punish or, or reward you. I mean, there's a conscience. 
right? The only thing that is disastrous is dissociation, is zoning out, is, as Ayn Rand said, we have the choice to think or to not to think, to feel or to not to feel, as Nathaniel Brandon revised as well. So if you say, I am not going to have the conversation with my father, then take a month or two and meditate on exactly what that means. Right. Okay. I am now going to let the lies and defenses of my father win over the genuine experience of my history. And I know I am sound like this right. is a terrible thing to do. It's not terrible. Just know it for what it is when you make that decision. Right? I know exactly what you're saying. I, and I, when you say that, I, I do feel like, okay, I can't do that because there's other people. There's my well, sisters. You can. I, I, right. No, right, you, I can. don't, again, can and can't, you can. I mean, if someone paid you a million dollars to sit down with your dad and not talk about the truth of your thoughts and feelings, you could do that, right? I mean, you've done it for 45 odd years, right? <laughs> yes. So you can do that. Right. No, I just want to be clear. It's a choice. But all choices have consequences. And we, we must be honest with ourselves about what we're doing. So we can choose to, be, to lie to people around us. We can choose to falsify our experience. We can choose to support their narcissistic vanities. We can choose to self-erase around them if we want. That has consequences, and we must be honest about it. Because otherwise, you will go spend time with your parents, you'll dissociate, you'll come back, and you'll be um, problematic for the people who actually care about you, right? Right. Do you think self, self-effacing self or self-erasing, I'm sorry, self-erasing is the same thing as low self-esteem? Well, self-erasing is, is worse than low self-esteem. Okay. Right. It, it's not yes. like getting less money. It's like getting no money. <laughs> right. 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 Okay. Low yeah. self-esteem is I'm not worth much. Self-erasure is to exist is to be destroyed. It's a fundamental right. contradiction to exist. And this is what fundamentally you're afraid of, to be blunt yes. with your father, that if you are honest, you will be destroyed, that to exist is to be destroyed. Yes, it's true. And with your mother, too. Mm-hmm. If you exist, you will be destroyed. Existence is destruction. Life is death. Truth is suicide. <laughs> Let's, and then you yeah, say, I feel invisible. Well, of course. Yeah, of course. Right. You fear non-existence. You fear, right, that for you, you have the choice. To not exist is to survive. To exist is to die. Dishonesty is breath. Honesty is strangulation. I mean, mm. that's terrible, right? What a terrible choice to give to a child. Right. Well, I am feeling like this, I have uh, a lot. Let me just read this thing. Yeah, no, oh, it's sure. a lot to process. And look, I mean, magnificent, fantastic work. Good for you. I mean, good for you. This is what the guy wrote to me. See if it uh, resonates with you. Uh, Steph, hope you're doing well. I need help. Or maybe just a virtual hug. I've been listening to your podcast for five or six months now, and it completely changed how I see life. Raised completely religious and a statist. The whole deal. Tonight, me and my brother were, my brother-in-law were discussing the need for the state. He said, we need one because people are bad. I countered with the observation that bad people will obviously seek power 
and that I don't believe that people are bad. He instantly went hostile, uh, stating, that's in the Bible. And I said, well, you're not killing your one-year-old every time she disobeys you. So that brought on a long interruption of what I believe, a long interrogation, sorry, of what I believe. I buckled like a coward, telling him half-truths of what I believe. I left their house minutes later feeling ashamed and a whole new fear of what this means. I'm extremely close to my family, so what if my family actually shuns me for not buying into what I was raised to believe? I've been toying with the idea of telling them, knowing it would be hard, but tonight made it much more real. And I think that if they actually shun me over it, we were never really close, just codependent. I guess I never thought living up to my own morals would mean I might lose my entire family. You wouldn't happen to have an extra strength blue pill to put me back in the matrix? Ha ha ha, he said. And I wrote, I, I wrote to him back. I said, gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What a terrifying and terrible experience. Coming face to face with that kind of propaganda is pretty horrifying. My sympathies. You don't have to tell them any truth that you're not comfortable with, of course. In my opinion, as long as you can consciously decide to avoid certain topics, I don't think that is particularly dangerous or unhealthy. You just have to recognize what you're doing and why you're doing it. But again, my sympathies. And then he said, I appreciate that. I really do. So got any of those blue pills? Ha 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 Right. And um, this is this is what we're we're facing. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's tough. It's very, very tough. I mean, there's a reason why statism flourishes, religion flourishes and philosophy is still a tiny sidebar in human history and, and human thought and human decision making. And um, it is, it is pretty horrifying that you say, well, if I am honest, if I tell you what I really think and feel, and I have reasonable reasons for what I think and good empiricism for what I feel, what happens? What happens if I'm honest? What happens if I'm honest to a family that always told me to tell the truth? Well, of course, like most power structures, a lot of parents basically say, uh, truth is a virtue when I need information from you. Truth is not a virtue when it makes me uncomfortable. Then you have to be uh, polite and respectful and nice and diplomatic and give me respect and whatever, right? So the, the value of truth changes upon the needs of the powerful. And uh, so I am uh, I'm sorry... I'm very sorry that you had this experience as a child, these whole series of experiences. I am incredibly, I, I admire you immensely for the work that you're doing. And I know I was like, well, here's what you're not seeing and here's what you're not seeing. But what you're seeing, for the most part, is incredible. And I really want to sort of acknowledge that, right? The, the coach gives the most instruction to the most promising dancer, right? <laughs> the dancer who's like <laughs> chain smoking and, 200 pounds on the couch, they don't give anything instructions to, right? So more instructions go to the most promising people. And so I really wanted to recognize that, that you have a deep emotional intelligence and obviously a great uh, philosophical mind and you have a natural affinity with universals, which you've obviously worked to achieve. And I really wanted to mention and uh, acknowledge that, uh, what amazing work you're doing. And, you know, what a lucky man your husband is. I hope that he appreciates the grand treasure he has I would dare say in his possession, that makes you sound like a possession. So, <laughs> so, uh, so that's not fair. Thank you. But, uh, Thank you, you know, great, so great work and fantastic job. Yeah. I and really I mean, just that. judging from Again. the comments of people in the chat room, like great job, very helpful for other people as well. 
And thank you for, oh, so you know, glad. the Sausage Festi to call in show a little bit. That's that's always nice. Thank you. Uh, and it, you're, I don't want to take the blue pill again after discovering you. Not not even close. I th- I lo- I'm so excited about the work you're doing. I feel more hope all the time. For the yeah, world. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I physically, re- uh, when I did, you know, when I did this, this Marxism video, d- doing the research for it and doing the video, I was like depressed for the rest of the day. Just like it felt like I'd literally rubbed my face in maggot strewn feces. I mean, being up against that kind of utterly revolting personality structure is just repulsive to me. It is, uh, it is ghastly. Even just to read about it, even just to describe it, it's, ugh, it's just gross. So, I mean, that's what you lose if you go back to the red pill world is you lose that self-protection of being revolted by vile personality structures. So um, I, uh, I don't want it back at all. My husband particularly loves the truth about series, so he thanks you too. Oh, good. Well, we'll call this one the truth about Michelle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know. It's tough to, to make that about a caller. But thank you so much for calling in. Uh, I hope you don't mind if we move on to the next caller, but we do yes. have quite a lot and a great job. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Mr. Mike. Right, Graham, you you're up next. Go ahead. Graham. Graham? Yeah. Graham. Hello. How are hey, you doing? Pretty good, man. How are you doing? Well, thanks. Uh, kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about what that first caller was talking about. Well, we we covered quite a range, so what? Uh, what's cool. Um, I'm kind of in the same boat as him. I'm uh, I'm already I've already left the states. I'm in uh, China now, and uh, I was kind of wondering. I'm trying to uh, learn Chinese right now, and then um, move over to South America and. Uh, started a little travel business and I was kind of wondering like I was interested in um what you were talking about about um like when you have uh free economics it kind of uh feeds the cancer of the state and I was wondering to get your thoughts on what countries have kind of the best in the freest economics and like how to kind of uh forecast like political, uh, like po- political, like the political climate. I don't know. I guess like how to say that, but uh, like how to get a reach. Like, yeah. So like, where's the best place to move, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. But like, well, yeah, yeah. And and also like, I don't want you to just tell me, uh, you know, which country. But I want to kind of get it, like, develop my own skill set for like how to, uh, how how to read like what's coming in the political future. For like wherever I would yeah. be, does that make sense? Yeah. So I mean, you can look at uh, you can go to heritage, sorry, heritage. dot org slash index slash ranking, and you can see the top countries uh, in the world. Those heritage in terms of freedom. Yeah. So heritage. dot org slash index slash ranking. According to this, the freest country in the world is Hong Kong. The second is Singapore. The third is Australia. The fourth is New Zealand, because, of course, most of their work is done by hobbits. The fifth is Switzerland, where you will have to get paid in chocolate watches and cheese. Number six, Canada. 
our home and native land. A U.S. Uh, chocolate in it, clocking in at number 10. Number 7 is Chile. Mauritius is uh, number 8. Number 9 is Denmark. Number 10 is the United States. Number 12, Bahrain. Number 13, Estonia. Anyway, I'm going through the whole list. But um, I can pretty much guarantee you that you do not want to be uh, in North Korea uh, or Cuba or Zimbabwe or Venezuela, uh, which are just terrible for these kinds of things. So, you know, don't, you know, it's not my opinion. There's lots of people who do lots of work and they try and figure out property rights, freedom from corruption, government spending, fiscal freedom, business freedom, labor freedom, money. They've got all of these indexes. And uh, I would suggest uh, have a look at that. Um, I can't vouch for it. I didn't do the work. But it seems like not a bad place to start. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, what what kind of like uh, statistics do I need to look for? Like like PPP, GDP. Like what does that stuff mean? Because I, I like when I was uh, uh, I don't know. I I, I don't get economics because I, I like I feel like wh- the way I think GDP is is it like measures how often money is changing hands. Is that right? No, that's velocity. That's monetary velocity. So G- uh, GDP is gross domestic product. It's a sum total of all of the goods and services, the value of all the goods and services produced in an economy. Okay. But it's, it's, a, it's a very silly statistic in many ways. So, you know, if, if someone gets sick, mm-hmm. that's considered to be a boost to the economy. Sure. If someone crashes their car... Uh, that's considered to be a boost to the economy. If a hurricane destroys a town, that's considered to be a boost to the economy. So GDP does not solve the broken window fallacy, which is that destruction is is a negative economic activity. Uh, It measures it as a positive economic activity. If the government starts, say, the Department of Homeland Security, because they need the 12 millionth Department of Guns, then that's considered to be an increase in the gross domestic product. Uh, It does not take into account significantly national debt um, and all these other kinds of things. And, uh, uh, so, and of course, it always has to be adjusted for inflation. And uh, it also, if people bleed off their savings and spend them, that is considered to be positive for economic activity. Uh, if people get unemployment insurance, which is funded through debt and inflation, and spend it, rather than not spending it because you know, they have to do something else, that is considered to be positive for the economy. Uh, there's a, a website um, called Shadow Stats that I think is, uh, let me just, I think it's .com. Uh, let me just check here. Shadow, Shadow Stats. Yes, shadowstats.com, which is shadow government statistics, and they attempt to, and I think with some significant uh, uh, success, they, they analyze government economic and unemployment statistics based on what used to be used. Of course, the government, every time they have a problem with the numbers, they simply redefine it, right? So the government, in terms of inflation, will take out gasoline and housing if those prices are going too high. So, I mean, everything, as Nietzsche said, everything the government has, it is stolen, and everything that it says is a lie. So government statistics are worse than meaningless when it comes to, um, uh, to figuring out I mean, if you have an overhead of $150,000 a month and you make $77,000 a month and you say to your investors, we made $77,000 this month. That's great, right? What you don't say is we lost, you know, the, what is it, 73000 uh, we lost from, uh, from, right? So when they say the U.S. economy added 77,000 jobs in December, um, that is a net loss of 73,000 jobs because 150,000 people a month come into the workforce. 
or they don't say, well, you know, 93 million Americans are now out of the workforce even though they could work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is, that is catastrophic. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the government numbers, uh, anything that comes out of the government is just serving political purposes. And it's all nonsense and lies. And uh, you can go. Peter Schiff's got some good stuff on inflation as yeah. well. But uh, you should yeah. uh, yeah, it just I wouldn't trust anything the government says. It's all cool. It's all not nonsense and propaganda. Just, just, just you, Peter Schiff and uh, Adam Kokesh, right? Uh, I know. I think there's a lot more people <laughs> than that. But um, not not the worst place. I, I scare myself enough with the with other YouTube stuff, so <laughs> I'll try to get. I'll... Yeah, and don't you know? Don't you know? Don't mentally whack off to doom porn from right, here right, right, right. to to evermore. <laughs> you know, the the doom doom porn is is uh, pretty pretty rife in the libertarian universe, yeah. and it has been rife for the last forty years. I mean, you go back forty years and the imminent collapse of the U.S. economy. Uh, David Friedman talked about this at Libertopia one year. You know, for the last forty years, uh, the, the American economy has always been about to collapse. And something new always comes along. I mean, the, the U.S. economy would have collapsed long ago if it wasn't for the efficiency brought about by computerization, by robotics, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Something new is going to come along. There is no John Galt who's out there plucking useful industrialists out of the mix. People are always trying to make a buck, always making things more efficient. Uh, it's just that uh, the high price of labor has artificially stimulated the robotics and electronics industry. I mean, there's no greater driver to robotics than unions. And uh, so uh, it has become, you know, I was at a mall yesterday and there was some little, you know, they have those little carts or booths in the mall. And I always think about this, there was this woman sitting there, you know, nobody was coming because I guess everybody's phones were already laminated like uh, uh, shields over the enterprise. And, you know, she's just sitting there for eight hours. She's getting, like, I don't know, eight bucks an hour, whatever, to sit there for eight hours and, you know, do the odd phone or whatever. And this is a human being with dreams and capacities and, and opportunities and thoughts and visions and preferences and all that kind of stuff. And it comes down to eight bucks an hour to just sit there. And that's, uh, I think that's pretty tragic. It just means that, again, she's had all human capital stripped from her through crappy government education and propaganda and never being taught how to think. And that is pretty uh, pretty wretched. But um, the, the reality is that, tragically, that's all she's worth. But if, you know, the minimum wage were to go in and now it's 20 bucks an hour, well, the place would just close down. There'd be no job. And, or they'd find some way to make it self-serve or whatever it was, right? Or they'd, Something, right? So um, the, the doom porn stuff is, you know, and mathematically it can't continue, but that doesn't mean, I mean, Canada just cut government spending by 30% in, like, and closed entire industries. And, oh, sorry, closed entire departments uh, in the federal government and so on. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be doom in a bag and, uh, uh, you know, the ruling class is pretty good at trying to keep things going, and they have access to much more information now than they did in the past. I mean, when it took two months for a message to travel the Roman Empire, you know, it was harder to keep things together. But with the instantaneous communication, it's a lot easier to keep the rotten structure propped up. And, you know, I mean, they'll just they'll just cut off, they'll, they'll turn on the dependent classes very, very quickly when they can't sustain them anymore. And then uh, the media will go right along, and everybody will go right along with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool. Um, 
Yeah, that's pretty much like all I really wanted to ask you, except for um, how do you how do you uh, research so well? I mean, like you you come up with uh, so much new and interesting information that I've never seen before. Like your uh, 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 <laughs> uh, it wasn't Morgan Freeman. Who was it? <laughs> uh, oh, David. Yeah, oh, David Freeman. <laughs> no, no, I'm uh, just playing Nelson Mandela. Uh, your, your your truth on Mandela was just full of stuff that I had never heard before, and uh, well, it's not hard. I mean, you you simply look for you know decently reputable sources that have nothing to do with the mainstream media. Okay, and like like what are what are a few of those? Oh, you know, I really I I read the Drudge Report. I, I like conservative sites quite a bit. Uh, I read a little bit of the Huffington Post, but I find it pretty nauseating. I think the Drudge Report is good, um, you know, just in terms of getting a different perspective. I mean, they won't post a lot of stuff about Christie. The Huffington Post is all over it. But the Huffington Post won't post a lot of anything critical of, of Democrats uh, and so on. So you can get a fairly rounded picture. Go to some of the foreign press sites. I think that's important. But um, I find it's not a bad thing to do to start. Just type Nelson Mandela, libertarian. <laughs> And, and you'll get some libertarian perspectives on Nelson Mandela. Now, since I come from the libertarian uh, background, it's not a bad place. But you just, you know, have to be patient. And sometimes you go to message boards uh, where people talk about this stuff and they'll have sources there that you can follow and, and see if they're of any utility and all that. So um, you just, you know, and I love to browse. I love to read. And I, I love finding out information that are outside of, outside of the, uh, the matrix. So for me, I uh, just uh, keep... Um, just keep plugging away, and and if you find people who are reliable, you know, just just subscribe, you know, just uh, try and, uh, yeah, I mean, Mises.org is is great, Mises.ca for Canadian stuff. Uh, you can get some useful stuff out of there, but um, I I I I I mean, for me, I like the conservative writers in general better because I just find them to be wittier, with better researched, and more engaging. I got the sixteen hours a week work for the poor family. Um, I got that out of Glenn Beck, which led me to a book on con the generosity of conservatives where I got more information from that. And um, Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and, and again, look for uh, look for conflicts of interest, right? I mean, so a lot of libertarian guys are, you know, they get their money from uh, gold uh, advertisers. And uh, so that's going to color what they say about gold and competitors like Bitcoin. Uh, there are no Bitcoin advertisers, really, not that many. But um, uh, so so just yeah, look for those conflicts of interest and and be aware of. Yeah, those. like when anybody's trying to sell you something online or, or anywhere, I guess you know that they don't want it. <laughs> and if anybody wants, to oh yeah, buy yeah, something, yeah. then they want. I, I, I don't know, but I I like I. Yeah, Apple has more iPads than they need. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, but like it seems like with gold. Um, that's kind of the one thing that somebody could tell, be telling you to buy, but it doesn't, it's not like they're gaining a profit off that, are they? Or how are they? Well, of course, yeah. In terms of advertising, yes. I mean, if you go to a libertarian site with lots of gold ads, then the gold ad people are paying money to the site, right? Right, right. But, but like when Peter Schiff tells you, uh, invest in gold... He's not telling you. Uh, he's not trying to tell you buy my gold. I'm keeping my gold, is what he's saying. But like you should buy gold. Well, no, no. And again, I don't know about. I don't know much about Peter Schiff. But to take a theoretical example, if someone who has a lot of gold is telling you to buy gold, 
right? Then they are going to profit from that, right? How so? Well, if you buy gold, the demand for gold goes up, which means the value of their gold holdings goes up, right? Okay, okay. And also, if they are getting advertisers who want to sell gold, and if they then say, well, you know, gold has now hit its lowest point, what is it, like 1100 and change now? I mean, down from 1800 bucks. So if they say, well, look, obviously the price of Bitcoin is going up hugely and the price of gold is going down, so I need to reevaluate my position, and now I can no longer recommend gold, what's going to happen to the advertisers who want to sell gold through their website? They're going to, I don't know. <laughs> well, they're not going to be that happy, uh -huh. right? So they're going to probably pull, and then they have to go and find new advertisers for a Bitcoin, right? Now, if they find new advertisers for Bitcoins, what if they change their mind about Bitcoin? Then they have a problem with the new advertisers, right? This is one of the reasons why I'm just not that keen on advertising as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to stay focused on uh, on the listeners, right? So that now, yeah, man, I mean, I just, I just want to tell you, I love what you do, dude. I, I like the the fact that you just give it out and and say, hey, if if it's worth. Uh, something to you then 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 give me something for it i i think that's that's very commendable yeah well thank you now i mean to be fair right i have bitcoins that people have donated to me and if people buy a lot of bitcoins then the value of my bitcoins goes up mm -hmm. now that would be a conflict of interest if i were telling people to buy bitcoins i have never once told people to buy bitcoins i wish to answer some erroneous arguments against bitcoins, mm -hmm. right? I.e., they have no intrinsic value. They have, you know, they're worthless because they're digital and so mm -hmm. on, right? It's it's all speculative and and so on. And so I wish to answer those questions, and I try to answer them as honestly as I can. And I say it is speculative. Nobody knows what the future price is going to be, and I've never told people to buy it. Sure, sure. So, uh, but but you know, if people accept my arguments that Bitcoin has value and buy Bitcoin, the value of my Bitcoin holdings will mm -hmm. go up, for yeah. sure. But I actually was saying all of this stuff before I had any Bitcoins. So hopefully that's not... Uh, I, oh my God, uh, I missed the... the uh, I knew about Bitcoins when they were five bucks a coin and I wanted to buy them, but I'm here in China and I had to go through some... Uh, some uh, I didn't know how to speak at all at the time. So I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> And then six months later, they're 200 bucks a coin or something. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, you know, it may not be too late. It may not be too late. So it's just something to think about. Anyway, listen, you mind if I get on to another caller? Yeah, because man. we have quite a queue today, and I, I really uh, maxed out on the first Go couple. Go for it. I, I really thank you for your time, and uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate your, your listening and support, and uh, I hope that you make lots of money. Because, you know, <laughs> the more money my listeners make the happier I'm sure I'll be. So, Mike, if we have a fairly short-ish call for the next one, I actually do have a play date to get to, uh, uh, but uh, I can do another little bit. Colby, is it a short call? or? Uh, yeah, I can make it short. Okay, you're up next. All right. All right, so uh, basically my question, I'll get right to it, is uh, having trouble trying to find a good business partner. I've been, uh, I've spoken to about, 15 different potential startup groups over the past uh, couple of months and started work on three different prototypes, uh, spent a couple of weeks working with, with three different groups and 
so far haven't found anybody that I've found, uh, I guess, agreeable enough to continue working with. Right. Have you tried the, um, the this community? Uh, a little bit. I I guess kind of the problem with in the free domain community is just uh, how everyone's so spread out. It can be kind of uh, difficult at times to work with people when they're in different time zones, different places, things like that. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you can certainly keep looking as far as that goes. But... Um... Yeah, and I, I certainly look. I certainly respect your um, discrimination. I guess I could say. Uh, I think that's very wise. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very good I've idea. I've been taking some advice it's from you on that idea. for sure. Yeah, I know. Uh, wait, wait to get it right. You know, that's really, uh, really important. And uh, so I, I really appreciate your discrimination in that area. And uh, good for you for for waiting. A business partnership, uh, you know, it's very it's very important. I mean, it's really second only to uh, third only behind parenting and marriage choices. That uh, in terms of of quality of life uh, issues, I guess maybe fourth after friendships as well. But uh, it is uh, is very important. So I, I really appreciate you uh, taking your time and and trying to get it right. And now, where is the discrepancy? Is it practical, ethical? I mean, those are really. E- the only functional things that, that really matter in business is whether people get shit done and whether they're <laughs> honest and good. Right. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. I mean, yeah, obviously intelligence and all that, uh, but, you know, a smart person can learn just about anything. And um, wh- where is it you're finding the deficiencies yeah, so showing I, up? I guess the first issue I usually have is that um, in the communities that I'm looking in, I don't know if it's the kind of groups that they are, are learning from, these startup groups or whatever, but they're kind of, I kind of see them in the kind of taking the Wall Street mentality where the first thing on their mind is trying to figure out how to get funding, putting contracts in place, non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, all this paperwork and contracts before they even have one line of code written or even, you know, a semblance of a real business plan for a product. And that's kind of annoying. Well, but you know why they're doing that, right? Uh, because they think they have a million-dollar idea. Well, yeah, to some degree, but uh, I would imagine why they're doing that is because it's really tough to sell a business if you don't have that stuff in place. Well, right. I, I mean, when I say startup business, I mean people who have an idea but haven't even begun work on producing anything of value, if that makes sense. No, no, I, I've got that. I've got that. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the best way to do it, but... Having sold a business, the one thing that was key to the buyers was that, the, the, I mean, particularly in software, right, as, as has been said, like 95% of your value goes down the elevator every day, right. usually at 2 a.m. for programmers and stuff, right? But the only value is the people fundamentally. And so one of the things that the business people want to do if they're interested in the long term, right, in growing and selling the business is they want to lock people in. Right. So you get your non-competes, you get your non-disclosures and all that kind of stuff. And that way, you've kind of surfed up, S-E-R-F-E-D, you've surfed up the people in the organization. And then uh, you, um, you make sure that they're not going to, you know, if you sell the company, they're not going to sell and create some competitor and take your customers, right? That's why the non-competes and non-disclosures are in place, uh, particularly the non-competes. Uh, it really, I mean, it, I think they're terrible myself. Uh, but I think they're, they're pretty wretched. Uh, and it's driven a lot by, again, the overabundance of stock market financing money and so on. 
I mean, they're 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 very tough to enforce, right? Because uh, you know you can't prevent someone from actually earning a living, and if all your skill set is in a particular area, but they're used to harass people and and all that, and uh, they keep people out of the marketplace, and thus raise the value of the share price of whatever it is you're going to buy and sell in terms of a company. So I think they're wretched. I think they are vile. I think that they are a product of obviously they're statist and they're you know based upon the status manipulation of the economy and status enforcement of laws in a free society. A non-compete would be, uh, uh, I think, a ridiculous idea. But um, so that is the uh, – uh, that's probably why they want all this stuff in place. Uh, investors will probably want it because the investors are looking to either make a lot of money or from the profits or they're going to make a lot of money from selling the company, both of which require that the, you lock in the human capital to the organization, right. which is effective to do through particularly non-competes and other forms of – um, monopolization of, of human resources. Yeah, so, I, I, uh, so that's why they're doing it. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't do business that way anymore. Um, but uh, I kind of get the feeling you know, that they are, are kind of using it to compensate for their lack of providing value. Um, in many cases. Well, it depends what you mean by value. In terms of financial Ongoing value, value, there can be significant. No, but there can be significant financial value in selling the company, having those things in place. Right. Right. Yeah. And and in terms of securing investment, that's something that they um, they want to have in place. So it does provide value. It's just not short-term business value. It's long-term financial value. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I kind of get the feeling like they feel like they want to lock their position into the company. And uh, especially people who don't have very much business experience or experience in software or anything like that. Um, like... I'm trying to figure out how to find people who are going to be able to provide ongoing value and have to go through. Why do you, sorry, but why do you need a partner at all? Why do I need a partner? Why do you need a partner? Uh, well, I have a full-time job right now and starting a business is something that I want to do, but I don't want to go it alone. I, I start lots of projects and things like that and it's hard to, I don't know, enjoy the collaboration. I want to work with somebody else. It's just, I guess, a preference. I don't have any particular reason that I can think of. If you got a partner, would you quit? Uh, what I'd like to do is, in my spare time, start the business. If I had a product that I thought was you know, going to go somewhere, then, yeah, I could quit my job. Okay, yeah, just because you're not going to be able to provide much value if you're working full-time, right? Uh, well, I only work eight hours a day. Five days a week. So, when I come home, I work. On yeah, but that's often time when people want to be sold stuff too, right? Uh, I'm sorry. Not a lot of business. Not a lot of business sales calls on Saturdays in the B2B world, in particular, right? So, in the business to business. Oh, right. World. Yeah. So, uh, so you are going to be providing less value, and you're going to be tired, right? I mean, you got to get up to go to work, and and so you know, you're just not going to be. As, as valuable if you're working full-time someplace. I just want to sort of mention that, you know, just so you're aware of how other people may, may look at that experience. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a good idea to, to try and find the right people. If you are interested in growing and maintaining business value, I, I would never ask someone to sign a non-compete now or a non-disclosure because I think that makes me less valuable as a manager. So for instance, uh, you know, if I said to Mike, well, 
you have to sign all these documents that say you can't ever work in podcasting again, <laughs> except for me. Like, I mean, all, all I'm basically saying is, hey, Mike, I'm going to be a shitty manager <laughs> because I've got a monopoly. Right. And I don't have to tell Mike I'm going to be a shitty manager. I'm sure he's aware of that before he joins. Is that, is that fair to say, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm by shish, I mean grabby. The grabby manager. No comment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I pretty much resign myself to the fact that I'm going to have to sort through a lot of people. And I'm trying to figure out how the best way, kind of figure out a model of sorting through those people. Like how the first few emails and conversations should go in order to get to the point where I can make a decision as quick as possible as possibly before I decide, Hey, is this, are these some people that I want to invest some time with maybe having to walk through and explain to them how, uh, you know, particular parts of developing software work or if that kind of like you were talking about a little bit earlier, is this person worth, uh, investing time to kind of cultivate and bring along? No, I would say that, you know, I'm very big on the, Blink stuff. You should read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, that you don't need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out. Right. So if you have an idea and somebody wants to work for you, and again, I know I'm going to get more emails to Mike on people who want to work for FDR, but the way that you know if somebody's going to work out for you in terms of business is they, they focus on how they can provide value to you. Right. So like, we get countless emails into Free Domain Radio. People are saying, yeah, I love, I love what you're doing. I know PageMaker. Uh, I want to help. And like we're supposed to connect all these dots, like figure out how you're supposed to help and, and all that, right? Now, you know, a more valuable email is, you know, I've, su- I've studied your SEO and I've, I've, I would recommend these tweaks and this is how much you can measure the value of what it is I'm providing and so on. Like when you, <laughs> when you are auditioning for a musical, they actually make you sing, Right. Right. And if you're a good singer, then you have a chance at being in the musical. If you're not a good singer, then you don't. And so in the entrepreneurial world, if you want to join someone's business, show exactly how you're going to provide value, how it's going to be measurable, and as a bonus, have provided value already. You know, so people could say, Steph, like people say, Steph, I really like you to do a presentation on Che Guevara, right? Yeah, okay. And I'd love to have wings and fly. (laughs) And unicorn horn would be cool, too. But if, like, that's, that's like, sheep thinking, you know. And, again, I don't, you know, it's just the way people are raised. They don't know anything about this stuff because they don't, obviously don't have any entrepreneurial experience. Now, somebody who really wants to work for Free Domain Radio, what they do is they say, here's a 25 rigorously researched set of slides on Che Guevara. Right. They have automatically provided value. How long does it take them? A couple of hours. Well, if you don't spend a couple of hours preparing for an interview, you don't deserve to get the job, right? Man, every time I'd have an interview anyplace, I'd read up on the industry, read up on the website. I'd try and figure out their business model, try and figure out how they provide value, look up their call. I mean, you do the research for God's yeah, sake, right? But people just send us a resume and say, you figure out how I can provide value and, and then pay me. And it's like, uh, no, because yeah. <laughs> you don't understand how to provide value already. And I can't teach you that in, in any time that would be something you wouldn't have to pay me a lot of money for. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to pay to train you on how to provide. I'm just throwing this out there. I did make uh, two Chrome extensions extensions for uh, FDR already. So just wanted to put that. Out there. Oh, this is the you, you guy did the quote of the day stuff. So you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> yeah, right? I'd like to think so. I hope so. 
So, so you know, right? You provide value, and if you continue to provide value, then we'll be like, hey, you know, we'd love to pay you more, or we'd love to pay you, or whatever, right? I mean, Mike uh, converted podcasts into videos and uploaded them, and it was great. And you know what? I'm like, you know what? I, you should totally, you should totally work here. You know, we should totally pay you, and you know, here's what we're going to pay you. And Mike says, uh, and do I get bus fare home as well? And I said, no. <laughs> um, yeah. It- <laughs> He said, I'm supposed to eat what exactly? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, you know, you live in America, hunt the homeless. <laughs> hunt and eat the homeless. Uh, that that's is been quite a challenge to learn, that's too. Good. I mean, I've... <laughs> They're faster than you think, eh? Like you'd think. They, they move kind of slowly, but, you know, you come at them with pitchforks and flamethrowers, they get all kinds well, of fleet on the their foot. They the area, right? too, so they duck in between dumpsters and under bridges and stuff. It's quite the nightmare. And plus, like, once they know what you look like, they know what you look like, and they'll, like, start running right away. So, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And so, obviously, Mike is getting fairly lean, but faster and more desperate, which is exactly where you need to be for philosophy. Yeah, so. I, I, so, I'll say, uh, I, I was kind of in that mindset, and kind of what my goal has been so far is to jump right into trying to start making the product. And within the first few days of you know, working with people and, and talking and communicating about actually making the product is kind of when I'm able, I feel like I'm able to decide if they're going to provide value or not. It's just so many people put that barrier in place before we can even, you know, begin making a prototype or something like that. So that's why I was trying to see if there's some advice you can give on trying to speed up that process. Or I guess maybe if they're wanting to focus solely on all the barriers to making the product, maybe that's not a Person I should work with. Them. No, I mean, look, here's, here's, here's what I would suggest for you. And again, I, I can't obviously write anything in terms of a business plan. So you've got a great idea for a product. I think it's fine to build a prototype. Prototypes are really important. Like I got really great value out of being a software manager when I said, screw paper documents. We're going to build a prototype. We're going to build working, working prototypes. And we are now going to get people to sign off on what – see, we would sign off on the, all the functionality – but that's not what the user sees. What the user sees is screens and right. buttons. And so I would, um, uh, uh, I would end up, like what we ended up doing after a year or two of screwing up projects, basically, which means we'd get them to the client on time, but we'd die from exhaustion and coding all night, is the client had to sign off on the user interface and the functionality. But the user interface first, right? And then they couldn't say, well, I don't like what the way the software is because what they see is what... Uh, you know, if you sell a house, you can't just sell the floor plans. You need to sell the artist's conception, right? So they know what, they, what it's going to look like. Right. And uh, so if you're going to start building a prototype, I think that's great. What you need, I would assume, is someone to come in and say, here's the market research we need to do to find out if this can be sold. Here's the competitive research. Here's the market space. Here's the number of people who might buy it. Here's the price bond of the competition and blah, 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 right? And that's what I did for the sort of second I guess the last third of my business career, uh, I was really into to figuring out the market stuff. I'd already built so much software that it wasn't, you know, huge amount of value me doing another one, but um, really trying to uh, figure out the um, the market size and the market research, figuring out competitive advantage, and interviewing people who might want the software, showing them prototypes, and figuring. I mean, all of that stuff to make it ready so that when you, you know, so that there's a target to hit when you finally get arrow in bow, so to speak. So if you, you know, I think you would need that, yeah. right? Uh, and um, uh, that would be, and somebody who does that to you, you know, so you, you talk to somebody and say, oh, I'd be interested in working together, right? Here's the prototype, right? Then just leave them the fuck alone and see what they come back to you with. Now, if they come back to you with some work, 
uh, that that shows you very interesting things about the marketplace that will help figure out how to build the software and how much you know it should be sold for and what the competitive situation is and so on, which for a competent person is no more than a, you know a day or two's work. Then they really want to work with you, and you know they can provide value, and they know they have to provide value in order to be hired as a partner. Hiring an employee, you know, I would hire. I used to hire out of um, University of Waterloo. And, uh, you know, I'd go down, spend a day talking to the students uh, and, uh, you know, bring some of them back for in-depth interviews and, and hire them and so on. And that was great. Loved doing it. And uh, it was really, really great to help people get started on their business careers. They already knew computers, but I could at least teach them some business stuff, which I've, I know from emails I've gotten subsequent that's been very helpful to them. Yeah. But in the entrepreneurial world, you need to provide value before you get hired. And, and people, you know, they don't understand. FDR is, you know, what is my 20th? 23rd year of entrepreneurial of my entrepreneurial life right and if people want to work here they have to provide value already they have to show value already and then they get and that's because the job is better right i mean mike how's the job compared to your last job Oh, infinitely better without without any question and i work a lot harder now and i'm a lot happier doing so than i was at my previous job that's for sure yeah, and it has some meaning. We're doing some good. And it's not like your last job didn't have meaning. You didn't do some good in the environment. But this is like good for the world in perpetuity. I mean, this is, you know, helping people get out of bad relationships and helping people not hit their kids and helping people not make destructive life decisions and so on, right? So this is a much better job than people get. And anybody who understands economics knows that if you want to get a really great job, you have to do extra work. And... You know, if, if you want to, to be an actor, then you have to do the sit-ups. You have to get the headshots. You have to go to, to acting school. You have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars probably before you really even get a chance to get paid as being an actor. And you have to do usually amateur theater. So you have to work for months or years for free before you become an actor. And so everyone understands because being an actor is a very desirable job, right? Right. You don't have to be a waiter for free for years before you become a waiter because how many people want to be waiters? Well, relatively few compared to those who want to be actors. So if you want a great job, then you have to really show how much value you can bring to the situation before you're even considered. Mike, does this make any sense? Because I think this is how it went with us, right? No, absolutely. Yeah, it's making perfect sense to me. And so for this guy, for, for the people who want to send stuff in, don't send us your resume. <laughs> You know, that's like literally it's like finding Steven Spielberg's address, sending him your headshot and waiting for a starring role. <laughs> no, 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 no. Madonna is a, is a huge star now. She's one of the biggest female owners, if not the biggest female owner. I think her and Taylor Swift. And when she wanted to get the lead for the movie version of Evita, she did auditions. Uh, she she called people incessantly. She had her agent call people incessantly. Uh, she made her own audition tapes. Uh, she she did costumes. She really worked like hell to get that role when she was already one of the biggest stars in the world. Right? She didn't just say, "I'm Madonna. I want the role. I'm the biggest star in the world." She worked like hell because they didn't think she could pull it off. I mean, not the right voice and all that kind of stuff. Right? And I thought she did a great job myself. Yeah, that's awesome. And this is true for a lot of actors really campaign to get roles. They get a role they love. They work night and day to get the role. And they're already millionaire, world-famous, Oscar-winning actors. I'm not – Madonna didn't get an Oscar. But even, you know, they work really hard to get these roles. 
And that's how you – so – and the reason I'm sort of boring you with FDR stuff is that for people who want to be your partner, let them show you their value. Just say, I would like to do this. I've already worked on a prototype, so I'm already bringing value, right? Yeah. So wait for them to bring value. Like if you say to someone, I've, I'm going to invest 10 grand in this partnership, and they say, oh, I want to be a partner too, what will you expect them to do? Uh, provide $10,000 or more of value. Exactly. Exactly. And so if you've already spent a week or two building a prototype, and you say, I'm interested in being a partner, wait and see if they are smart enough to know that they need to spend a, walk or, a week or two, or at least a couple of days, coming up with something of value to bring to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I've, I've kind of done that, like I said, I, I did make three prototypes for three different uh, startups and I did kind of see what they would come back with if they would put in the work for the next steps to kind of, you know, start moving things forward and it seems like they just kind of fallen down on and didn't, didn't come back yeah. with anything that I thought was valuable or would be helpful or, you know, not even. In and you know what I say to that? Exactly what I said to the early guy. Thank you for the information. <laughs> right. Thank you for the information. You don't understand how to provide value. You don't understand how to be proactive. Well, my God, if there's two things you need when you're an entrepreneur, provide value and be proactive. Yeah. I mean, do you think I – was I sitting around waiting for Noam Chomsky to call me? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, the people I try to get on the show versus the people who want to come on the show is like – what is it, 50 to 1, Mike? I wouldn't say it's that high. Um I mean, if we discount the guy with three black visitors. <laughs> Not 51. I'd say maybe um, 10? 10 to 1, to 1, I'd say. Yeah, okay. All right. But it sure as hell was, was about 100 to 1 when I <laughs> – yeah, it was a billion to 1 when I started, oh, yeah. right? And so, so I'm, just, I'm just pointing out. Uh, what was the name? You know, we are not fending off Sam, Sam Harris to get on the show. Oh, Sam, I don't believe <laughs> – that we have room for you because uh, I need to do a show about Chris Christie. Oh, and by the way, you can't even be upset with me because apparently I have no choice. Anyway. You guys will get there. Give it a few more years. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm in was, no rush. What, to me, this is just... What just was right. the name of that book you said by Malcolm, someone called Blink, was it? Oh, it's Malcolm Gladwell. The show is called... Uh, the book, sorry. The book is called Blink, and it certainly is available on Amazon. Sorry, it's available on Amazon. Uh, I'm a big fan of Audible, audible.com. Oh, yeah. uh, that's why I've used those for guys for audiobooks for like eight or yeah, nine I get years. Three bucks a month from and uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Uh, I don't have any consideration with them, but uh, it's definitely uh, worth checking them out. Uh, they've, I think they've got it too. Uh, also, I think his new book is quite good as well. Um, he's uh, he's gone a bit out of the suburbs with the new one, which is good. He's a bit white bread for me sometimes, but uh, David and Goliath is good too. But anyway. Okay. So I hope that helps. But yeah, you're already bringing value. You basically need to see if anyone's going to bring value back. And uh, until they do, you know, hey, thanks for the information. You know, with Mike, too, it's like, wow, you're really working hard on this stuff. You've got great ideas. We're having great conversations about where the show can go. Let me give you some money. You know, because I've already brought a lot of value by doing philosophy show for six years and building up a listener base and audience base, right? So if Mike wants to come on board, he needs to provide some equivalent uh, some sorry, some significant level of value before it's, he's even open for consideration because it is such a sweet gig. I mean, I'm a great boss to work for. I'm a great friend to work with, and um, uh, it's you know I think you know survivable pay and you know growth um, and all that. And so and you know he can work whenever he wants. I continually tell him to take some time off, and uh, but you know not ever when I need anything. 
So, I mean, the challenge for Mike is to figure out is to figure out when I may have lost my keys uh, and need him to remotely control the robot webcam help Steph uh, bot. Uh, but so, yeah, no, Mike is perfectly willing. Uh, perfectly, it's, it's essential for Mike to take off time at any time when I don't need anything. Uh, and so knowing that ahead of time is part of his skill set. Is that is that fair to say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out when you won't need something. Well, we'll work on that. Somebody said, I don't know how what kind of magic Mike uses to rope guests like Joe Rogan in. I think the magic is youth. I think the magic is knowing youth culture. <laughs> I mean, I have no I had no idea, literally had no idea who Joe Rogan was. And um, so I think that and, and Mike has helped me to appear slightly less stodgy <laughs> uh, and a slightly less. Um, what was it? So square on a cube. I can't remember what your phrase was. Uh, but uh, he certainly helped me with that. Apparently, there's a a movie called The Fast and the Furious, which young people seem to quite like. And uh, Hunger Games also, uh, not just a description of my childhood dinner experience, but uh, also apparently movies. So, yeah. So, I mean, Mike brings, you know, enormous and fantastic value. And, and uh, so uh, I would suggest that uh, people who have uh, this kind of stuff uh, want to get involved in this kind of stuff. It's a great job. It's a great gig. It's a lot of fun. And just provide a lot of value and, and have it work from there. You know, a lot of people uh, who when we work in Hollywood, they start like they just do stuff for free. Uh, you know, they're just, uh, you know, I'll work in the mailroom for like nothing or for free or whatever. There's lots of, you know, if you want a great job, you know, pay the price. It's, you know, you pay one way or another. So, uh, so that would be my okay. suggestion. Well, I will uh, continue my search and thank you very much for the advice. You are very welcome and thank you so much for a great call. Thank you, everybody as always, for making the Cathedral of Philosophy Sunday mornings for me so fantastic. Uh, I look forward to these calls. Uh, I'd like to do more of them, but they're just so long. And uh, that's my fault, I guess, uh, but also because you people are so damned interesting. So um, if you'd like to help out the show, of course, what do we get? New Coinbase FDR URL, Mike? Oh, yeah, that's our affiliate link for Coinbase. If anyone's interested in signing up uh, with Coinbase.com to buy some Bitcoins, it's probably the easiest uh, company to go with if you're based in the U.S., um, buying in U.S. dollars, Coinbase.com. If you go to fdrurl.com slash Coinbase, I think we get like $5 in Bitcoin for every person that signs up. So we're not getting rich from it. But um, if you're going to sign up anyway, please use your affiliate link. It's much appreciated. And uh, yeah. And we looked at a bunch of different places. This is the easiest and what we consider to be it's the best. It's the one I use um, for um, so. anything that I buy in U.S. dollars. It's by far the easiest to get money in and out of. So... They do not accept um, well-oiled webcam dances from people over 40. Uh, so, um, in fact, they will vociferously complain if you crash their servers with that stuff. So don't do that. Uh, I can say that from significant experience. But, yeah, so fdrurl.com forward slash Coinbase if you want to buy some Bitcoins. That is uh, helpful for us and, uh, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. So if you'd like to do that, that would be great. FDRURL.com forward slash donate uh, for helping out the show. I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, FDRURL.com forward slash iTunes. Uh, we, we got to top 10, right, Mike, uh, in, uh, after Joe Rogan? Yeah, it was um, top 10 in the news category. And I think the podcast that you did with Joe was as high as three. I, some people sent in uh, screenshots of it being at number one, so it might have hit number one for a brief period. But it was high up there in the rankings. I'm not sure exactly where it is now, but definitely threw a lot of traffic our way. So much thanks to Joe. All right. You all, 
you all heard Mike use the word brief. Uh, I, I consider that uh, absolute dictatorial commandments <laughs> about what I'm supposed to wear on my next show. Brief. Not even brief. Brief, which I assume is... You see what I have to anyway, work with, folks? You all heard it. It's recorded. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Because um, it never happens the other way. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, so um, thanks, everyone, for your support. Uh, what, what was our download bandwidth thing the other day, Mike? It was something pretty cool. Oh, I, was it uh, six, 550? Yeah, 550, uh, 600, right around, that, um, right around that number for gigabytes per day uh, in podcast. Yeah, gigabytes. So 600 gigabytes per day, and we've actually reduced the file sizes just because bandwidth is uh, pretty expensive. Yeah, for the but, first uh, Rogan show, we actually we touched 800 one day, and that just destroyed the server. So we, now we have a CD yeah. on. It's funny. <laughs> you can only get so much philosophy through one pipe. Uh, that's what she said. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, 600 gigabytes a day. So the job, uh, the the the, uh, the show is doing very well, and you know, massive thanks to Mike, and of course to Joe. Um, and uh, he's uh, he's a, a scholar and a gentleman to to chat with, and I look forward to doing another show with him in March. So have yourselves a great week, everyone. Thanks as always for your support, your enthusiasm, your honesty, your openness, your courage. Massive kudos to the listeners as always. Have a great week. I'll talk to you Wednesday.